Oh shit, don't tell me my niggas got lost in time. My niggas are dying before their time. My niggas are serving unjust time. My niggas are dying because of time. Look, we all wish we had more hours in the day, and these days there are an endless number of resources out there proffering easy solutions for time mastery and ultra-efficiency. But the real answer might be changing our relationship with the clock. Life Kit's Andy Tagle has more. Good time management begins with accepting your mortality. Stay with me. It's not the only step in the process, of course. But according to author Oliver Berkman, it's an essential element that many an efficiency-minded or optimization-inclined individual often forgets. As a self-described productivity geek in recovery, Berkman says it's easy to be seduced by the allure of time management tools, color-coded planners, to-do list apps. These are all ways that we are helped to feel as though we're like just on the verge of conquering time, being perfectly in control. But of course, we never quite get there because I think humans can't get there. The other problem with efficiency tools, he says, is that they often work in the wrong ways. Email just begets more email. And getting better at email only creates an even bigger inbox problem. You see where we're headed with this. Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, is all about how and why to reevaluate your relationship with time, starting with the startling brevity of the average human lifespan which gave the book its title. He doesn't pull any punches from there. Any degree to which you can sort of see the truth that our time is limited, that we can't do everything, that you can imagine far more goals than you could ever achieve, any degree to which you can see that, feel the discomfort of it, but be okay with that is another degree to which you have taken ownership of your life and started to build a meaningful one. Coming to grips with our finitude can make it easier to spend our time on what actually matters most to us. How do we figure out what that really is? Berkman offers a good starting point. I write about a question from James Hollis, who suggests that we should ask of our lives, of big decisions in our lives, not, is this making me happy, but does this path enlarge me or diminish me? He says, while research shows people are generally bad predictors of future happiness, we're usually pretty good about knowing what paths will lead us to growth, if not always ease or contentment. Is this person challenging me or reinforcing bad habits? Is this new job an opportunity or just a means to an end? Once you figure that out, Berkman suggests making the most of your time through strategic underachievement or choosing in advance what to fail at. When you understand you can't possibly do everything you hope to do, it can be easier to focus your energies on big projects that matter most and to level with other tasks falling to the periphery. If you in your own mind can at least decide Look, you know, for the next six months, I'm not going to be the kind of person who keeps a tidy home. Instead of constantly feeling bad about yourself when you fail to do an impossible amount, or when you realize that, in fact, you were going to have to fail at something, you decide it in advance. It's a lot more pleasant. These techniques can help you feel less hounded by time. And then from there, Berkman says, take notice of where your attention goes. Because at the end of the day, that's really all we've got. When you get to the end of your life, the, the sum total of all the things you paid attention to will have been your life. If there are some friendships there that you never actually paid any attention to, well, you didn't really have those friendships, right? So it really matters what we're paying attention to because it just is, it just adds up to a life. If you're paying attention to things that on some level you don't want to be paying attention to, you're just giving away the only precious thing you have, right? Which is the time of your life. For NPR News, I'm Andy Tegel. I was aware 
that there are some non-white people who are rich classified as black in Mexico. But I didn't, I didn't hear what was going on. <laughs> and uh, come to find out, which everybody on the line probably knows except for me, that that was actually people from the part of the earth that's called Haiti that was in the area that generally were people from uh, Mexico would join up at to attempt to enter into the part of the world that's called the United States. And uh, in other words, you can just witness the desperation of people uh, that are literally a force to move from place to place. A group of 11 Haitian asylum seekers has filed a class action lawsuit against the Biden administration accusing the government of physical and verbal abuse, racial discrimination, denial of due process, and other severe rights violations while they were forced to take shelter under a bridge in the borderlands of Del Rio, Texas, in September. It was in Del Rio, where U.S. Border Patrol agents on horseback whipped Haitian asylum seekers as they waded across the Rio Grande. One of the plaintiffs says she was, quote, terrorized by officers on horseback. As part of the lawsuit, the plaintiffs are also demanding the U.S. government allow the return of the thousands of Haitian asylum seekers deported from the Del Rio encampment. We're joined right now by Garlene Joseph, co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, which is part of the class action suit. Garlene recently won the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award. <clears throat> Congratulations, Garlene, and welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you Thank talk you about so much, the significance? Thank you so much for having me. Can you talk about the significance of this lawsuit? Absolutely, Amy. We believe that the lawsuit will force the administration to be accountable for what we continue to see as anti-black racism within the immigration move system. We clearly understand from the testimonies and reports of the people who were abused, the witnesses and potential victims of what happened, including uh, Miwa Joseph, who is the gentleman we all saw in that picture being grabbed by the officer on horseback, pushing and really abusing him. So the whole lawsuit and it is really in solidarity of the people who came and asked for safety, the people that the administration have decided to disappear by expelling and deporting them, by silencing their voices and their stories. So this is why we, we felt it was necessary to hold the administration accountable. And, Gurley, so far, the Biden administration has allowed over 120 deportation flights, with about 14,000 migrants of Haitian descent being deported. Are all of them being sent back to Haiti? Absolutely, which is a painful reality for our community. Um, as of September, the people we saw under the bridge, close to 11,000 of them have been deported and expelled, including the gentleman we saw on the picture. And under President uh, uh, Biden, as you mentioned, 120 flights have been sent to Haiti, even in the middle of the extreme uprising, as we have spoken about before. As we see the country continues to go under 
extreme political unrest. At the same time, the United States is putting a level four, do not travel to Haiti, and asking U.S. citizens who are in Haiti to leave the country immediately and then deporting uh, asylum seekers, people who have come here simply in search of protection, sending them back to Haiti. And, and the administration has also begun a new Remain in Mexico program uh, for asylum seekers. Uh, are, are, uh, how is the Mexican government dealing with those who are, who are uh, told to remain in Mexico uh, if they are from uh, Africa or Haiti or, or non-Spanish-speaking countries? What the government has done, they have expanded MPP, uh, uh, Women in Mexico, which we really call the Migrant Persecution Protocol. As of right now, they have expanded it to include everyone from the Western Hemisphere, including people from Haiti, Jamaica, Brazil. And what does that do? For Haitians specifically, they are in limbo because Title 42 is still in full effect. That means they can, they can expel and deport them under Title 42, and then return them to Mexico under MPP, or just leave them to, to be unable to get protection, understanding that black people in Mexico cannot hide. They are extremely vulnerable, extremely visible. That's why we stand against Title 42, against MPP, and demand that the, the, the administration uh, provide a, a safe and orderly way for people to get protection and ask for asylum. So we are really pushing really hard and stand with our plaintiffs, with our brothers and sisters in search of protection. And we will hold President Biden and the entire administration accountable for what we all witnessed, the horrific pictures, the horrific videos that we saw. They must be held accountable. So you have 11,000 Haitians deported back to Haiti. But in other immigration news, the Biden administration's announced plans to allow 20,000 more immigrant workers into the U.S. temporarily via the, HT, the um, H-2B visa program, because companies are saying that they don't have enough workers. 6,500 of the visas will be set aside for applicants from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador and Haiti. Can you talk about what's going on here, deporting thousands and thousands, and then what, will some of the people who have been deported been brought back up? Um, absolutely not, not under that program. That's why we are asking for the administration to bring the people back, because at the same time, as you just mentioned, Amy, it doesn't make sense. And we also understand that it is extremely impossible for people to even get access to the U.S. embassy in Haiti. So even if that program was in effect, how will the people have access to the program? And why will they deport Haitians coming into the country and then say they will provide visas for people uh, uh, in search of, 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 uh, of protection? Uh, so we, we are calling on all of those to be to be held accountable. We are making sure that people have access to whatever protection that are afforded to them under the law. And we will continue to push to make sure that asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border are protected, no matter where they are from, but also understanding that the anti-black racism uh, uh, is at the root of what we are watching. And we want to make sure people understand that immigration is a black issue. We cannot disconnect that from the reality after what we saw under the bridge in Del Rio. 
Yerlene Joseph, we want to thank you for being with us, co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. American streets will be running red tonight when people release the beast. The beast in Florida, a history of anti-black violence. Um, before I get to the overall purpose of what you were trying to do with the book, I wanted to focus on two words. The first one, beast. Uh, why did you use the term beast in the title? Because I wanted to connote to people that this, was, that this thing had a presence. This, to be the beast was uh, the embodiment of white racial hatred and violence. That's, that's, that's what the beast was. That was what was allowed to prowl Florida virtually uh, unchallenged for, for almost a century. It was the beast. It, it prowled. It sought people out. It victimized. It hid itself. It, it, it exerted tremendous power over people who were not even a part of it. So I saw all of that as, uh, as the embodiment of, of what I conceive a beast to be. Uh, and uh, that, that's why I use that term. Release the beast, boys! Unmarked African-American cemetery with hundreds of graves has been found at the site of a downtown office building in Clearwater, Florida. It's at least the fourth abandoned African-American cemetery rediscovered in recent years in the state. NPR's Greg Allen reports the fines are forcing communities to come to terms with their history and racist policies. Barbara Story Love grew up in Clearwater Heights, a neighborhood that no longer exists. She was born 69 years ago in the basement of a local hospital. Back then we were called colored. That's where the colored mothers and their children were housed. Several years ago, Story Love helped form the Clearwater Heights Reunion Committee, a group of people that grew up in the neighborhood before it became a victim of urban renewal. The group began asking questions about the old St. Matthew's Cemetery. It was closed in the mid-1950s and sold to developers who were supposed to move the graves to a new location. Using ground-penetrating radar and later by excavating, archaeologists found something many residents had suspected. Most of the graves had never been moved. Sorry, Love visited the excavation site, now an office building's parking lot. I went over and looked in the burial site, and it was like the skeleton was looking up at me, saying, thank God you found me. Archaeologists believe several hundred people may be buried under the parking lot and a building that now stands on the site. It's not the only African-American cemetery recently rediscovered in Clearwater. A little over a mile away, an investigation has found dozens of graves at the site of a now-shuttered public school. And it's not just Clearwater. In Tampa, investigations conducted by the Tampa Bay Times helped uncover at least two more African-American cemeteries that were abandoned and built over. Some of the graves are under the parking lot at Tropicana Field, home of the Tampa Bay Rays. Hundreds more were found at the site of a public housing complex. In all these cases, black residents were told the graves had been relocated. Antoinette Jackson is the chair of the anthropology department at the University of South Florida. There were bodies still there, and, and, and a large number of them. That caught everybody's attention. The cemeteries were all closed in the 1950s, as cities around Florida's Tampa Bay began to grow rapidly in the post-war era. Property that had been developed and used by the black community was taken for other uses. Jackson says the cemeteries were deliberately forgotten. Well, oftentimes we don't use the word lost or um, abandoned. We are really saying erased, physically erased from the landscape for other purposes. 
In Clearwater, city council records from the mid-1950s show officials discussed using road improvements as a, quote, inducement to confine Negro home building and purchasing to the existing area. Jeff Motes with the Florida Public Archaeology Network worked on the cemetery investigation in Clearwater. He says assessments levied by the city forced the cemetery to close. There was certainly policies that further marginalized an already marginalized group of people. The land was used for a new shopping center. The city paid the developers to move the graves to a new location. But with the discovery of hundreds of graves still on the site, Clearwater officials are facing tough decisions. At a recent meeting, city councilman Mark Bunker said he was struck by what he saw in the archaeological report. We were not on the, the commission at that time. But, um, you know, the city does have some responsibility in dealing with this. And I think we all acknowledge that. Another councilman said he wasn't sure the city should be held responsible for something done nearly 70 years ago. The rediscovery of lost or erased black cemeteries raises many issues, including who's liable for righting past wrongs. A task force created by the Florida legislature will soon issue a report with recommendations for local and state officials. University of South Florida anthropologist Antoinette Jackson recently helped create the Black Cemetery Network, a website and organization linking African-American cemeteries that are being rediscovered and investigated around the country. To put a face and stories and people and communities on the map and in the in the public domain. A bill is also in the works in Congress that would create an African-American burial grounds network under the direction of the National Park Service. Greg Allen, NPR News. Shot me off in Harlem. Yeah, good old Harlem. Have your fun under the hall of sun, so drop me off in Harlem. There's Duke Opioid overdose prevention clinics can save lives, but some residents in Harlem are pushing back against these services because data show the current programs in their neighborhood are largely being used by non-residents. WNYC's James O'Donnell explains why Harlem is calling for a fairer distribution of these clinics across the city. When Anne Corinne Dabo moved to Harlem three years ago, she started taking her newborn for walks around the neighborhood. She quickly saw the impact of the worsening opioid crisis firsthand. Needles in the park and open drug deals became commonplace along 125th Street. Dabo started worrying about the impact on her two-year-old daughter. What she's internalizing is that it's normal to see black and brown people pass out on the street. And then when we see them like that, we just keep walking. You know, we might stare at them, but we don't do anything. And your child is growing up in this environment that sort of is telling them that they don't matter. A growing group of Harlem residents is placing part of the blame on city planning. They even rallied with the Reverend Al Sharpton last weekend against the neighborhood's new supervised injection site. We gotta speak up! We gotta while they support the addiction programs, they say Harlem has been a too convenient location for these types of services that other neighborhoods fight hard to keep out. Clearly, black and brown neighborhood is where the government will put services that whiter, wealthier neighborhoods don't want to see. Eva Chan, a member of Harlem's community board, says her fellow residents are often accused of just not wanting the programs in their backyards, or NIMBYism. Some people think we're being NIMBYs, but we're actually victim of NIMBYs. The protesters are frustrated that the majority of patients using these services travel there from outside the neighborhood. Recent data shows that over 75% of patients at Harlem's clinics live outside Harlem, 
They come from as far as Staten Island or Westchester for their treatment. Meanwhile, healthcare workers like Mary Brewster, who works with a syringe exchange program at Harlem United, feel caught in the middle of protesters and their patients. Our ultimate goal as harm reductionists is to ensure that people remain alive. Um, that's really all we're concerned with is saving lives and making any positive change. Advocates are calling for more clinics around the city, especially as drug overdoses spike across all five boroughs during the pandemic. But the tension could also be eased by changing some rules around methadone, a drug used to fight addiction. Because methadone is itself an opioid, it's distributed unlike any other medication. Patients must travel daily to obtain it at clinics, not at your corner pharmacy. New York loosened its restrictions on the use of take-home methadone doses during the pandemic. Medical advocates are pushing for those to be relaxed even further, which would mean patients would have to travel to Harlem less often for treatment. James O'Donnell, WNYC News. With um, the Flint and how the, the black male said that um, we could have lost an entire um, generation to um, the lead poisoning. And um, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I'm certain uh, we have lost an entire generation to um, that, that um, chemical um, warfare um, that is the Flint, Michigan. Um, disaster, terrorist attack. Incidentally, uh, the terrorism with the water, now that did also happen in Flint, Michigan, and Newark, New Jersey. Those are just places that we know about. I'm sure a number of other regions as well. That's part of the uh, infrastructure package that is having all that difficult time. The report we heard was about Benton Harbor, which is also in Michigan, not Flint, Michigan. Totally different area, which also happens to have a significant population of black people who are suffering with this problem and may have a so-called lost generation uh, of children uh, as a result of chemical biological warfare. But yeah, two different regions. An update now on Benton Harbor and the lead water crisis we've been following there for the past few months. The majority black city's residents are now questioning why they still are getting high water bills despite having to rely on bottled water for their daily household needs. Last week, officials reported a decline in the lead levels plaguing the city's tap water, but not enough to authorize use for drinking, cooking, and bathing. In response, the water department, the water bill development, uh, Benton Harbor Mayor Marcus Muhammad said water credits need to be given out until that's lifted. That is justice. Joining me now from Benton Harbor is the Reverend Edward Pinckney. He is the head of the Benton Harbor, uh, of, excuse me, of Benton Community Water. He's also the first person who brought uh, this important issue to our viewers' attention when I had him on the show back on October 13th. Uh, Reverend, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome back to the show. You're on the ground. What's your take about uh, the official report that there is an actual decline in the lead levels there now? Well, you know, that, that, that report is very deceiving. Um, here, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, they brought in some specialists to do this test. And what they did, they went to houses that they knew had low lead. So they could bring the, the lead level down. Here's how I know that. Even on the last test, the very last test, they went out and got additional samples so they could lower the uh, uh, action level down to 24 rather than 33, which was that. So I can't trust anything that they do. So it's an important thing to note. So, so the numbers was at 33 parts per billion 
They're now saying it's down to 24 parts per billion. According to government numbers, EPA numbers, you want to be at 15 parts per billion of lead in the water. So even the number that they say they're at is still a little more than 50% more than it should be, but you're saying it's still close to that 100% more than it should be uh, number or of uh, 33%. How would they know who to go to to find low levels? You're saying they went and found all the houses with a little bit of lead right. to lower the average down. How would they know how to do that? Because th there's a list that you go, they know exactly who has uh, low lead, no lead in their homes. Because uh, the pipe, but here's what they, they do. After they have tested several times, they, they discover how low that lead is, and then they go check that lead and discover that it's low, and that's how it does. Now, remember this. Even though they have already checked, 15 parts per billion of lead is still horrible. You shouldn't have no lead in your water. You can't go around here doing no victory dance because of uh, uh, 15 parts per billion of lead is in the water. You can't do that, and that's what they're doing now. They're trying to encourage the people now that they they can also now cook with this water. You can now uh, uh, make baby formulas with this water. You can you can now even bathe in this water, which is doesn't make any sense at all because that is not the truth. What about these high water bills, uh, especially when you rely on bottled water for practically all the water usage? I mean. People can't use the water, but the water bill is still high. How, how is that even being explained or justified? Well, you, they can't justify it. You, you should not have to pay a single dime for this water. The water is contaminated. If, if you had a tour in your suit, the first thing you do, you would take it back to the store if you bought it. So with the water being contaminated, the first thing that you should do is not pay a single dime. But here's what they're doing. They're putting your water bill, if you don't pay it, on your taxes on your house so now they can take your house uh, uh, away from you because you have not paid your water bill so it's, it's all kind of trick it's, it's gentrification right before your very eyes so you think the goal of this is to just price people out of the neighborhoods to push people out of Benton Harbor so that a wealthier class of people can come in oh absolutely that, that that's the plan the plan is to eliminate uh, uh, the black, we're down to 9,000 re residents. 9,000, we were at almost 20,000 at one time. Now we're down to 9,000 residents. It won't be long before we be down to 6,000, 5,000, 4,000, and eventually the hostile takeover of our community. It's coming whether we like it or not. Now, you've had criticisms before of the mayor, Marcus Muhammad. Uh, how, at this stage, would you rate uh, Mayor Muhammad's efforts uh, during this crisis, this phase of it, anyway? Well, I, I would give him an F minus because everything that's going on today. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is did you say? Did you say you give him an F minus? <laughs> F minus. I would give him an F minus because everything that's going on today is because of the Ben Holland Community Water Council. This is what we put in the petition that we want it done. And by putting it in the petition, this is why they're doing it. Even the governor, I guess most people didn't know what to do. They had no idea really what to do. So we laid out a plan, and what they're doing now is executing our plan. Even though I feel that it could be done better and more efficient, but at least it's getting done. He personally has nothing really to do with any success that we're having today.
Well, well I'm sure uh, the mayor will disagree with that assessment. I will be having uh, every effort made to reach out to him so that he can come on the show and explain his position. But Reverend Pinckney, we appreciate you for coming in as always. We appreciate your efforts in attempting to get clean water into your city. Thank you so much. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service? Uh, no comment. The FBI is now involved in a hate crime investigation on Washington University's Danforth campus. A mural that displayed prominent black figures was defaced with the name and symbol of a white supremacist group. News 11's Michaela McGee is near campus with details. The story that never ends is the name of the South 40 underpass mural that served to honor historical black figures and bring educational beauty to the campus. But administrators announced that a group defaced that mural sometime Saturday night in the name of a white supremacist group. Six artists collaborated in August 2020 to showcase numerous black people who were excellent in their respective fields, like Annie Malone, George Pogue, Dr. Robert Williams, and even the late Chadwick Bozeman. The university released a statement saying at some point Saturday night, individuals marked over those images with the name and symbol of the white supremacist group. Witnesses say the markings represented Patriot Front. In that same statement, the office of the chancellor said, Washington University stands unequivocally against hate, bigotry, racism, xenophobia, and discrimination in any form. There is no place on our campus for these behaviors, and this type of harmful action will not be tolerated or ignored. DeGenero Jones, the visual artist who forefronted the mural, says he is hurt by the attack, but says there is always room for forgiveness and education. Oh, that's what the mural is about. It's, you know, the mural provides a bridge of understanding uh, when we created it, you know, in the spirit of diversity. And so uh, we certainly uh, are not... Uh, against, you know, not forgiving them for, you know, doing what they've done. But at the same time, we don't want every time we paint somebody comes along and messes it up, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there's always room for forgiveness. The university described the defacement as horrifying and distressing and has sent out resources to students who are in need of someone to talk to. No suspects have been caught, but this is an ongoing and very active investigation. Reporting at Washington University, Michaela McGee, News 11. A pair of a Paul Bro Middle School student is alleging that her daughter was pushed down the hallway by a teacher. She's also saying that the same teacher read aloud a racial slur in class after being asked not to. News 15's Gabrielle Riles tells us the timeline of events according to the mother. When Chantel's Erin's child told her that she was pushed down the hallway by a teacher, she thought her child was blowing things out of proportion. But when she saw the footage obtained by police, she could not believe her eyes. 
you know, it's easy as adults to say, you know, shake things off. But when you're young, things do affect you um, in ways that you might not even realize. On October 7th, Chantel Aaron's daughter, an eighth grader at Paul Bro Middle School, was allegedly pushed down the hall by her English teacher. Erin says her daughter was trying to get a tardy slip for class, but the teacher said she would make it there if she would just walk a little faster and allegedly pushed her along the way. So she got up from her desk, turned my daughter around by her shoulders, pushed her approximately 20 feet to the door and then about 15 feet down the hall to the stairwell. The mother says she immediately reached out to the school for a meeting with both the teacher and principal. When she got there, the teacher was nowhere to be found. Her daughter has since been pulled out of the classroom. It's just, um, I guess, baffling to me that it took the school two months to actually ask my daughter for her statement regarding the incident. It occurred on October 7th, and her statement was taken on December 7th. According to Erin, this is not the first incident her daughter has had with her English teacher. At the beginning of the school year, she knew the book, A Lesson Before Dying, would be read in class. So she asked the teacher to omit any racial slurs because her daughter had been called one in the past. The teacher was aware of her history, her personal history with that word. And so for her to still read a passage and not just omit the word or say N-word, my daughter's feelings were very hurt about that. The mother claims that other obscene words were skipped over when read in class. She says at this point, there are only two things that can make things right for her and her daughter. I asked for an apology from the teacher and I asked for my daughter to be allowed to take the class that I had to withdraw her from online. Erin has since been told that her child will be able to retake the English class in summer school. We reached out to the Lafayette Parish School Board and they declined to comment. Reporting in Lafayette, Gabrielle Rios, News 15. Now the mother of the Paul Burrow student tells News 15 that she is planning to request that the school board approves a policy that would omit all obscene language to be read in class. Uh, Non-white people who are racially classified as black and their children schools have not been doing well uh, in Miami-Dade County uh, because of the, uh, the lack of gaining access to things that would be helpful for uh, the areas where our children go to school. For kids around the country, this school year was supposed to bring a return to normalcy, ending the isolation and stress of remote or hybrid learning. But halfway through the year, schools and healthcare providers say they're seeing a massive rise in students struggling with mental and behavioral health problems. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has the story. When Millis Public Schools opened its doors this fall, teachers and staff were happy to have everyone back in classrooms. Bob Mullaney is superintendent for the school district located just southwest of Boston. You know, we were so excited that everyone was coming back to, to begin the school year. But he says it's been stressful. From the beginning, we've seen uh, elevated levels of, of stress, anxiety, different behavioral issues uh, in students. More students acting out, being aggressive, not just at his school district, but across the state. We've had uh, in Massachusetts a, a principal who was assaulted by a student. We've had staff members assaulted by students. We've had students assaulting other students. And students hurting themselves. We've seen an increase in students with self-harm issues, suicidal ideation, more suicide attempts, 
things that the school itself is really not equipped to handle. Malini says the school district has referred more kids for mental health treatment than ever before, and healthcare providers nationwide are seeing more referrals coming in. Definitely, we're seeing the schools referring kids with more behavioral issues and aggression. Dr. Vera Foya is Associate Vice President of School Mental Health at Cohen's Children's Medical Center in Long Island, which runs a couple of behavioral health centers serving 14 school districts. She says she and her colleagues are seeing kids with a range of mental health issues. A lot of them still come in for suicide risk assessment or depressive symptoms or school refusal. And many kids are ending up in hospital emergency rooms because they are in crisis and have nowhere else to seek help. Earlier this fall, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Children's Hospital Association, and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry called the situation a national emergency. The U.S. Surgeon General called attention to the issue this month in an advisory on youth mental health. Heidi Baskfield is Vice President of Population Health and Advocacy at Children's Hospital Colorado. Our emergency department admissions with respect to mental health visits increased by 75%. On any given day in our emergency departments, there are between 15 and 40 children with mental health needs seeking care. Speaking at a virtual congressional briefing last week, Baskfield said the situation is untenable. We are consistently full uh, with all of our mental health units. Our outpatient visits went from a three-week wait to sometimes upwards of nine months. And if you can imagine being a parent with a child who has mental health needs, calling for support and basically being told, call us back in a year. Now, the rise in kids' mental health symptoms didn't start with the school year. In fact, recent studies show that the pandemic exacerbated an already growing crisis in youth mental health but the situation has only worsened in recent months. And much of that has to do with the stress of returning to school for many kids. Dr. Tammy Benton is psychiatrist-in-chief at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She says kids have lost friendships during the pandemic and have lost out on a year of social development. The year that they were out of school was a year that they didn't have the opportunities for developing the social skills that normally happen. And you're sort of catching up on all of that under extraordinary circumstances. But Benton says catching up has been harder for some kids than others. Children who relied on in-person support at school, which went away with virtual learning, and they fell far behind their peers. Also, kids who had a mental health diagnosis before the pandemic. Many people had delayed services, so by the time they did seek mental health treatment, they were actually doing worse. Um, For some of those kids who had actually pretty strong peer support groups prior to the pandemic, had to reestablish those when they returned to school. Then there are children grieving the loss of loved ones to COVID-19. An estimated more than 175,000 lost a parent or a caregiver. And kids of color who are already disadvantaged have been disproportionately affected by these losses, says Dr. Nicole Christian Brathwaite. That trauma alone is very significant, particularly when, when there are some children who have lost generations of family members. Christian Brathwaite is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and chief medical officer at Array Behavioral Health, a telepsychiatry company. She says these kids are often trying to cope without adequate support. Going into school and having to manage that stress without necessarily having 
a therapist available or school counselor or nurse in many underserved communities. Some schools have no mental health supports and some schools have one counselor spread across an entire district. That's why schools across the country have reached out to mental health care workers and advocates for support. In many places, schools and providers are collaborating to more quickly connect kids to care before things escalate. And there's been some federal funding that's helping schools add more resources to address the increased demand, including Millis Public Schools in Massachusetts. Again, Superintendent Bob Mullaney. The CARES Act and the American Rescue Act has provided us with some funds to hire our own counselors and social workers. But he's already worrying what happens if the funding goes away next year. You know, we need to find a way to continue these services because it's not going to be done in a year. The mental health toll of the pandemic on the country's youth will likely persist for a long time. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to Crisis Text Line at the number 741741. White supremacy is the sickness. The CDC is reporting new data on life expectancy in the U.S. It finds that the death rate in the country went up dramatically in 2020 compared to the year before, primarily because of the COVID pandemic. As NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, that led to the biggest drop in life expectancy seen in decades. The overall mortality rate in the United States went up by nearly 17 percent last year. And that corresponded to a drop in life expectancy of 1.8 years. Bob Anderson is the chief of the mortality statistics branch at the CDC. He says all age groups, 15 and up, saw a rise in deaths last year. Obviously, We have a large number of deaths that are directly attributable to to COVID. 10% of all deaths were due to COVID-19, making it the third largest cause of death in the country. But there were rises in deaths from other causes too, like heart disease and stroke. We do know that COVID can cause circulatory complications, and so some of these might actually be COVID-related. And some, he says, were likely because people had trouble accessing care because of the pandemic. The report also documents a big jump in deaths from unintentional injuries, mostly drug overdose deaths, which had already started to climb up by the end of 2019. As the pandemic arose, the increases got steeper. So the pandemic certainly, I think, had an impact, even though it's not the sole driver of of what's going on. Given the, the impact of the pandemic, specifically in the U.S., it is not surprising that we see this drop in life expectancy. Jose Manuel Aburto is a demographer at the University of Oxford. What I do find very surprising is the magnitude of the loss. The report finds that the drop in life expectancy in the U.S. is the largest single-year decrease in more than 75 years. And Aburto and his colleagues' research shows that among 29 developed countries, American males experienced the biggest drop in life expectancy last year. Dr. Stephen Wolf is Director Emeritus at the Center of Society and Health at Virginia Commonwealth University. He says even before the pandemic, the U.S. was already lagging behind other rich countries in health outcomes. Um, So there's a complex set of reasons why, in general, uh, the health of Americans is inferior to people in other countries. And all of those issues rolled into the pandemic. Lack of access to care and socioeconomic disparities are big factors, he says, and only exacerbated by the pandemic, causing disproportionate impacts on underprivileged communities, something that's documented in the new CDC report. The 
increase in mortality was twice as high for the Black population and three times as high for the Hispanic population. This is the product of our society and the barriers it places to uh, access to health and good opportunity. And those barriers will need to be addressed, he says, for the U.S. to see a drop in death rates in the long run. But with the pandemic still raging, we can bring down deaths in the short term by following public health guidelines. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. Again, white genetic annihilation. Simon & Schuster Audio presents Countdown. How our modern world is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race. By Shauna Swan, Ph.D., with Stacey Colino. In the day's other news, the pandemic has pushed U.S. population growth to its lowest rate since the country's founding. The Census Bureau reports fewer than 400,000 people were added in the 12 months ending in July. That's just a tenth of one percent. Besides the deaths that it caused, COVID has curtailed immigration and it has delayed pregnancies. Gentlemen, In 1948, President Harry S. Truman had the courage and forward-thinking enlightenment to desegregate the United States military. Now I want y'all to welcome the Bayonne Diving School's first color trainee, Bosa's mate, second class, Carl Brashear. I don't hear anyone welcoming Bosa's mate, Brashear. Master Chief, No disrespect to the president, but I don't bunk with niggas. The Pentagon is updating its policies on extremism within its ranks. The participation of active and former service members in the January 6th attack on the Capitol led to this. Thing is, though, the issue is not a new one. NPR's Odette Youssef covers domestic extremism. Odette, okay, so what is and what is not allowed under the revised policies? Well, A, the key thing here is that membership or affiliation with an extremist group actually is still allowed. Uh, What's not allowed is active participation, and the updated policy strives to be pretty comprehensive in what that includes, you know, such as paying membership dues or fees. Uh, And the updated policies also define what prohibited extremist activity is. You know, one really key addition to this policy are some new rules around social media, uh, namely that for the first time, service members will be held responsible for what they do on social media. So, for example, liking or sharing content that endorses or promotes extremist activity would be prohibited under the new policy. All right. Now, so just to be clear, in case uh, people heard it and don't believe it, a service member could be a member of the KKK and not be disqualified from service. That's right. You know, this gets at a balance that senior defense officials said that they were trying to strike here. You know, they said this isn't about policing ideology, but rather activity. Uh, You know, they they said it was very important to balance service members' First Amendment rights against what it's called the corrosive effect of extremists within the ranks. You know, obviously, this is controversial. Uh, Representative Anthony Brown, who's a Democratic congressman from Maryland and a retired Army colonel, has said that he believes membership and not just activity should be enough to disqualify somebody from service. Now, when it comes to activity, how is the Pentagon defining that? 
Well, um, the updated rules would prohibit uh, the promotion of terrorism or uh, the support or endorsement of the overthrow of the U.S. government, for example. Um, and as I mentioned, when it comes to social media, sharing, retweeting, liking, or posting uh, anything that would support or endorse extremist activity would also be barred. What are extremism experts saying about whether these changes go far enough? Well, I, I heard um, a few areas that uh, they felt fell short. Um, one person I spoke with is William Braniff. He's director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland, and he's also a retired Army officer. Um, he noted that the updates really prioritize identifying service members that are engaged in extremist activity uh, by strengthening something that's called the Insider Threat Program that the military's had for about a decade. The question is, what next? Is it merely to identify them in order to remove them from military service, or is it to take a public health approach and try to address the vulnerabilities that that individual may have, try to increase their protective factors so that they become less vulnerable to violent extremism? You know, I also heard concerns that this this framework really relies mostly on people reporting instances of extremist activity that they observe, and that there still isn't enough being done to inoculate service members who are retiring against recruitment from extremist groups. And one last thing, how big of a problem is this in the military? The working group report says up to 100 active military engaged in substantiated cases of prohibited extremist activity in the last year. I'll note that's a tiny fraction of 3.2 million active duty members. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. Odette, thanks a lot. Thank you. Hear ye! Hear ye! The court's in session. The court's in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. We now know who will replace Lafayette Parish Judge Michelle Odenay. In the last hour, the state Supreme Court announced it is appointing retired Opelousas Court City Court Judge Vanessa Harris as judge pro temp. Her appointment is in effect until February 28th. Now, Here's what we know about Judge Harris. She received her bachelor's degree in computer science from Southern University. Then she earned her law degree from the Southern University Law Center. After spending some time in private practice, she served for 20 years as the assistant district attorney for St. Landry Parish. In 2009, she was the first woman and first African-American to serve as Opelousas City Court Judge. Hughes served in that role until she retired in December of last year. Now, all of this comes after the Supreme Court disqualified Judge Odenay from all of her job duties effective immediately. Today, the state Supreme Court approved her motion to go on unpaid leave, not for three weeks, but indefinitely. This comes after video surfaced of Odenay and her family making racist remarks. Associate Justice uh, Jefferson Hughes disagrees with today's ruling, and in his dissent, he says, quote, while I condemn the language reported in the media, at this point, all we have are media reports. I would like to see some hard facts as to who said what and when the situation did not happen in a vacuum. Two days ago, we spoke with Odenay's attorney who confirmed Odenay acknowledges it is her voice heard in the video using racial slurs. To read the full court order from the state Supreme Court and to see our week-long coverage of the Odenay controversy, we have it all at KTC.com. Bell Hooks, feminist icon, presented. She was born Gloria Watkins 69 years ago in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, September 25, 1952. But the world knew her by her pen name, 
bell hooks, and readers recognize that name by its distinctive use of lowercase letters. Why lowercase? Two principal reasons. One, to remind readers it wasn't about her, but about her work. And two, it was a tribute to her great-grandmother. She was a towering feminist, poet, author, and social critic, who published more than 40 books, from essays to children's books, and taught as a professor at Yale, Oberlin, and the University of California, Santa Cruz. In 2015, she founded the Bell Hooks Institute at Berea College, which housed her archives. I distinctly remember her interviewing the notorious rapper, Little Kim, when she asked her about love. Kim answered quickly and quietly that she didn't know what love was, for she never felt loved. Bell Hooks explored these themes in her institute and in interviews as well as her ideological target, what she called, quote, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, power structure, unquote. In a 2015 interview with the New York Times, Hooks explained that the system of domination consists of many parts, not one thing, and therefore had to be named. She thought about love a great deal, and here are some of her thoughts. To get the love we always wanted, but never had, to have the love we want, but are not prepared to give, we seek romantic relationships. We believe these relationships, more than any other, will rescue and redeem us. True love does have the power to redeem, but only if we are ready for redemption. Love saves us only if we want to be saved. Bell Hooks. Many readers know of the book by myself and Mark Lamont Hill, from a classroom to a cell. Mark and I prepared for this book by reading Breaking Bread by Bell Hooks and Cornell West, two intellectual giants. We also read a similar text by Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, and the renowned writer, James Baldwin. Bell Hooks returns to her mother's with a message. Love not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. The man, race, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. Two of the five officers involved in the death of Manuel Ellis while he was in Tacoma police custody have been cleared of wrongdoing. Ellis, who was black, died March 3rd, 2020. His case did not come to light until shortly after the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police a few months later, when Ellis's death in Tacoma was ruled a homicide. Three officers who were on scene that night are awaiting trial on charges of second-degree murder and first-degree manslaughter. Today's announcement pertained to two different officers, also on scene that night, but not charged with any crimes at this time. 
KNKX's Kari Plogue is here to help us sort out what happened. Hello, Kari. Hi there. This case has been in the news a lot, uh, but it's important for us to review what happened that night. Sure. So Ellis was stopped while walking home from a convenience store in South Tacoma on the night of March 3rd, 2020. He was encountered by Tacoma police officers. There was a struggle and Ellis eventually died in their custody. The officers initially said Ellis attacked their vehicle, but charging documents from the attorney general in the criminal case against three of them detail witness videos that show the attack by the officers was unprovoked. Okay, there are three officers who face criminal charges. They are awaiting trial, as we said. Today's decision was about two different officers. Who are they and what was their role that night? Today's decision involves officers Messiah Ford and Armando Farinas. And again, neither of them are charged with crimes. Witness videos captured Ellis saying multiple times that he couldn't breathe before officers Ford and Farinas arrived at the scene. It was Farinas who placed a spit hood over Ellis's head when Ellis was already on the ground being restrained by the other officers. Ford helped hold Ellis's legs after that initial struggle and rolled him into a new position. And officers Ford and Farinas have been cleared of wrongdoing. That's the news today. Uh, why were they cleared? Sure. So interim police chief Mike Akey says that they didn't violate any policies. Now the officers will begin the process of transitioning back to work. Officer Ford has been on paid leave for a year and a half and Officer Farinas was placed on leave in January. Interim chief Akey says there have been a lot of changes to policing in that time and they need to get up to speed on those. Now, there was a news conference today, uh, and you asked city leaders how today's announcement that these two officers have been cleared of wrongdoing might be received by the family of Manuel Ellis. I want us to listen for a moment to what city manager Elizabeth Pauley had to say. I, I can't claim in any way to know um, what their grieving process entails and, and how our um, our process in this timeline has impacted their grief. I, I can't claim in any way to understand that or to define for them what justice looks like in, in this case. What, what I can assert is that I have the deepest empathy for the family's loss. That's city manager Elizabeth Pauley, and she went on to emphasize that the city tried to do this uh, investigation, this internal investigation, as timely as possible, keeping the family in mind. That was kind of an exhaustive process, right? Correct. The department was trying to finish this internal investigation in 90 days. It's been well over that now since the investigation started in the summer. City officials say that's because the process involved thousands upon thousands of records and multiple investigations at several different agencies. And this review is only partially over. As I mm. mentioned earlier, they are still working through the review of the three officers who are charged with crimes. The mayor said she recognizes the process can be frustrating for the public and for the family. And she reiterated her grief for Ellis's family members. But she says city officials have to limit what they say now because of the ongoing nature of this investigation. Um, after the announcement today, I talked with Ellis's sister, Monet Carter-Mixon. She told me she is frustrated that this decision fell to an interim chief, and she thinks cops shouldn't be investigating cops. What is he doing making these decisions when he's not going to be the police chief? Someone else is. This is the exact reason why we need an outside group of people that are not affiliated with the police 
to investigate these things and to conduct these investigations. What Monet was talking about there is that there's going to be a new a new police chief, Avery Moore, who relocates from Dallas and will start work in just a few weeks. Um, and she thinks that this decision should have fallen to him. The city also just negotiated a new three-year contract for more than nine months now, and it included back pay for 2021 and a wage increase for 2022 that amounts to a 13 percent raise once the contract is ratified next week. So one other thing that stood out to me in today's news conference about this was exactly what returning to work will look like for these two officers. They're going to undergo some training, of course, as we said, uh, but their names are out there. Their images are out there. And there was this question today about whether the officers would be able to effectively do their jobs if reassigned to patrol duties. Here's what Interim Chief Aki said in response. In the end, I exonerated them because they didn't violate any policies. So uh, with that, they're going to move on. Uh, They're going to do their jobs as best as they can. And we'll have to address uh, any issues that may uh, come up because of those issues you brought up. This is something that Monet stressed to me today in our interview after the announcement. She's worried about those officers being back on the streets. She says she worries about having an encounter with them herself or with her family. And she says she isn't convinced that they wouldn't get wrapped up in another deadly encounter on the job. All right. KNKX's Kari Plogue following this news today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Go online to knkx.org where you can find more of Kari's reporting, including more details about today's announcement and previous stories. It's all available for you at knkx.org. The Dilemma of Black Man. We continue our weekly series highlighting the stories of people who've been wrongfully convicted. Tonight we have some good news. Devonya Inman's wrongful conviction led to more than 23 years behind bars, but he's finally been cleared of all charges. Inman was sentenced to life without parole for murdering a Taco Bell manager. He denied any involvement in the murder and was never and never wavered. And now, with help from the Georgia Innocence Project, he's finally able to walk out of prison a free man in time to spend the holidays with his family. Turning now to another case out of Kansas City, Missouri, um, that we hope yields the same good news. 51-year-old Keith Carnes has spent 20 years behind bars for a crime he says he didn't commit. Now he may get another chance to prove his innocence as a Missouri judge decides whether or not he should get a new trial. Keith was found guilty by a mostly white jury of shooting Larry White, someone the police say was a rival gang member. The state's case against Keith was built almost entirely on the testimony of two eyewitnesses, both of whom have since recanted their stories. For years, activists like those with the nonprofit Miracle of Innocence have been fighting for his release. Now Keith may be one step closer to freedom. With me now is Christopher Eiliff, Executive Director of Miracle of Innocence and attorney for Keith Carnes. Welcome to the show, Counselor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Yodit. Christopher, um, before we get into the latest on Keith's case, could you walk us through the crime uh, that he was found guilty of? Sure. This was probably a drug killing that occurred uh, in a part of Kansas City, Missouri, where drugs were regularly sold. Uh, It occurred just off of Prospect Avenue. And what happened was an individual came up and shot the victim in the head and ran off. Uh, Immediately afterwards, the police arrived, started looking for witnesses, and they immediately identified some people that they knew personally uh, as likely people who would have knowledge of what was going on in that area. 
And so as a result, they, they investigated uh, and, and questioned them. And uh, they quickly concluded that the wrong person had actually been involved in the crime. Uh, these people were pressured into saying that uh, Keith Carnes was involved in it. Keith was actually blocks away. He was in an apartment house. He came down when the bullets uh, were fired and told several people in the lobby of the building, please get back into your room, stay away. You want to, everybody wants to stay away. That was well known to the police at the time that he was blocks away from where the actual uh, incident occurred. But because somebody was pressured into naming him as the, uh, as the shooter, uh, they quickly concluded he was the right one. And then they also went to one of their confidential informants. They never told the defense about this confidential informant who was regularly used in order to jam up people that the police wanted to jam up or to simply bring a quick conclusion to a crime where they didn't really know who did it. So that's what happened back, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Keith has been in prison ever since then. And uh, only in the last few years has it all come out that almost everything that was said about him was untrue and that uh, the actual crime was committed by someone else. So that's why you said um, that this case from the beginning uh, was the subject of severe official misconduct, starting with the initial police investigation. Um, Christopher, um, I mentioned earlier that the state's case against Keith was built almost entirely on the word of two witnesses. You say that uh, police um, pressured into identifying um, your client, Keith, as the perpetrator in this crime, uh, but they later recanted their stories. Do you, do you know why they took um, back what they said during the trial? Well, you know, first of all, conscience is a very powerful motivator for people, uh, especially when they can't be pressured any longer. Uh, now, 20 years later, they're not subject to any kind of police pressure. The detectives who uh, investigated at the time uh, have since retired, and uh, they simply couldn't live with themselves and with what they knew about the crime. Uh, the one person who'd never recanted was actually not in a position to ever see where the, the uh, uh, crime was committed. She claimed uh, that she saw uh, Keith Carnes uh, shoot the victim while he was lying on the sidewalk through the head. Well, all of the forensic evidence shows that he was never lying on the sidewalk. There were no bullet marks in the sidewalk. Uh, and that it was clear that she had no idea how the crime had actually been committed. Uh, she was also blocks away and in a position where she couldn't have seen it. But she was a police confidential informant, someone that they regularly used to try to solve crimes because she was knowledgeable about what was going on in the drug world uh, down in that area. And uh, uh, she didn't recant, but during the hearing uh, in November, it became evident that she couldn't possibly have seen what was going on. Now, you've been fighting for peace exoneration for years now. How did Miracle of Innocence first become involved in the case? The case was actually brought to us by a private investigator by the name of Latara Smith, who is involved in exonerating people who've been wrongly convicted. And she had brought it to some attorneys here in town. They brought it to us and they were looking for support. 
because it simply costs thousands and thousands of dollars to spend the time that's necessary to get innocent people out of prison. And when they brought it to us and they brought all of the evidence to us, uh, we sat down with them and we said, we are absolutely going to support this 100% and uh, go forward with it. And something highly unusual has happened in this case. Uh, Missouri is one of the most difficult states to exonerate innocent people in, uh, both because the governor mm -hmm. will never grant pardons and the attorney general never believes that they ever made a mistake at trial. And so as a consequence, always opposes these things uh, very, very strongly. And in this case, um, the evidence was so strong uh, that even the Missouri Supreme Court said, we're going to appoint a special master to investigate the facts in this case. And that's what they did. They appointed a judge, uh, Judge Hickel, who uh, is no, very well known for being skeptical of uh, things that have gone wrong in previous trials. He listened to the evidence and all of the facts were presented to him. And we we're hopeful that within the next 30 days or so, Judge Hickel will make a recommendation to the Missouri Supreme Court that Keith Carnes be freed. That would be absolutely amazing. I, I have one last question for you, Christopher. I mean, have you had a chance to talk to um, Keith uh, with all of the developments in this case happening? And what is his spirit like? Is he hopeful that he's going to be walking out of prison a free man? He is extremely hopeful, and uh, his mother also is extremely hopeful. Um, the founder of our organization, Daryl Burton, who himself did 24 years in a Missouri prison for a crime he didn't commit, and I were at her home last Saturday, and we were looking at uh, how we're going to arrange for Keith to live when he comes home, because that's one of the other things that Miracle of Innocence does that's different from other innocence organizations is we provide for the needs of each other when they come home. Which is extremely important. Thank you so very much. Christopher Iliff, attorney and executive director of Miracle of Innocence. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, sir. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up, you know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. We, the jury, on the charge of manslaughter in the first degree, find the defendant guilty. Uh, the verdict on count two on the charge of manslaughter in the second degree, find the defendant guilty. And that Just a few hours ago, former Brooklyn Center Police Officer Kim Potter led away in handcuffs. A jury found her guilty of first and second degree manslaughter in the death of Dante Wright. And just a short time ago, we got this new mug shot of Potter taken right after her guilty verdicts. She's currently at the Shakopee Women's Prison. Say his name! Dante Wright! Say his name! Dante Wright! When I say guilty, I'll say guilty! 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 guilty. Outside the courtroom, chants of Dante's name led by his brother following the announcement. 
That verdict comes on the fourth day of jury deliberations and just hours before court would have been in recess for the Christmas holiday. We do have team coverage of the verdict tonight, including reaction from the Wright family. But first, let's go to Lou Raguse, who has been following this case from the beginning. Lou? Well, Lauren, I just spoke with a juror in this case who told me this was the hardest thing he's ever had to do, and he thinks all the other jurors would agree with that statement. They deliberated for about 27 hours after closing arguments finished at about noon on Monday. What we didn't know until today is that they actually came to a decision for guilty on manslaughter in the second degree on Tuesday morning. It was the more serious first degree manslaughter charge that they were stuck on. But ultimately, late this morning, they reached a unanimous decision. When the verdict was read, Dante Wright's family cried out in court. When Kim Potter was taken away in handcuffs, her husband yelled, I love you, Kim. Afterwards, Attorney General Keith Ellison, whose office prosecuted this case, spoke about the significance of this verdict, convicting a police officer like this. I think that juries admire police. They respect them, and they want to make sure that high ideals and standards are maintained. Now, Potter is scheduled to be sentenced on February 18th. There'll be a lot of legal wrangling leading up to that date. But according to the Minnesota sentencing guidelines, she could get about seven years in prison. Now, Jennifer Hoff continues our team coverage. She was outside the Hennepin County Government Center when the verdict was read. Jennifer. Lou, we're back here now, and as you can see, it is incredibly quiet here at this hour, almost surprisingly so, when just a couple few hours ago, there was dozens of people out here, of course, very excited and very jubilant, most of them supporting Dante Wright's family after that verdict was read. One of those uh, family members who was out here from the beginning was Dante Wright's brother, and he said now was the time that he said was the right time to speak out publicly for the first time. Take a listen. We've been fighting for a long time. It's been a long nine months, but we're happy with the verdict. We're happy with the guilty guilty. That feeling of jubilation taking over the grassy area here outside the courthouse. As soon as that verdict was read, there were cheers. There were also tears and there was a live ban too. Now the family says that today's decision isn't necessarily justice. Rather, it is an officer being held accountable. His brother, Dante's brother, saying that change is coming and the supporters who were here echoed that. Well, today is the 23rd, it's Dante Wright's favorite number. And so the universe just aligned and hopefully there's some police reform that's gonna go into place at this point. She and the others who gathered down here were telling me that they were not confident at all in what the verdict would be. They were very unsure, in fact, in part because those deliberations took four days, which she felt was a very long time. So when the verdict was finally re read, she said that is what just added only to all the excitement that was felt down here. Back to you. All right, Jennifer, thank you. Now, once that verdict was read, some people visited the spot in Brooklyn Center where Wright was shot. Chris Rapsky spoke with some of them, and he's live there now. Chris? Hey, Lauren, the candles are lit tonight at the Dante Wright Memorial, the site where his car crashed after being shot by Kim Potter. Less than a dozen, maybe a dozen people stopped by the memorial. Not much, but they were powerful visits nonetheless. 
We saw tears from Zoe Seely, a Brooklyn Center native who lives down the street, who thought it best to come to the memorial minutes after the verdict was read to think and grieve. We saw Darshe Bolden, who started shouting comforts and praises to Dante Wright at the foot of the memorial. Some came to drop off flowers and leave messages to Wright and family. Uh, here's what Seely, the first person that we spoke with, had to say. There's just that little tension in the back of my mind of like, oh God, this is gonna go wrong. It's been three days. They're asking what if we can't get to a verdict? Like, you know, you're always thinking the worst in this situation just because that's what history tells you. So for it to finally be over and for justice to be served, just it, it feels great in a, in a way. So it's quiet out here right now. But if you put that in contrast to the days of protests and the fight with police officers at the Brooklyn Center PD, you know, days after Wright's killing, the quiet, it speaks volumes. Lauren? All right, Chris, thank you. Well, just about an hour ago, we heard from Brooklyn Center Mayor Mike Elliott on today's verdict. Sharon, Lou, Sharon Yu is live now with what he had to say. Sharon? Well, Lauren, he said that he was actually very grateful to the jury for coming to the decision that they did. And while he knows that justice and accountability don't necessarily look the same, what he saw today was indeed accountability. And he also took today as an opportunity to talk about the success that he and his city council had has had with the recent police reform vote that they had back in May. They called it the Dante Wright Kobe Demock Heisler Community Safety and Violence Prevention Resolution. He says that's currently in the works including hiring folks to lead these efforts in the new year. But most importantly, he says today's verdict was a stepping stone to healing in the community. I thought that the jury made the right decision in uh, holding uh, the uh, former uh, officer accountable. And I felt that this was an important moment for our city, for, um, for our community, for our state. And so I'm greatly relieved. I think that this is also going to go a long way in helping to heal. You know, let's help the community heal by seeing what accountability looks like. And in terms of what the relationship between the city and the police department will look like, he says the city will continue to put the voices of those, quote, affected by policing at the center of these reform discussions. But he says police officers will also be a very integral part of those discussions moving forward. Lauren. Sharon, thank you. Governor Walls tweeted about today's events. He said no verdict can bring Dante Wright back to his loved ones. Walls also said Minnesota has work to do to make sure a tragedy like this doesn't happen again. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, December 25, 2021. So I have been told. I think it was like Wednesday of this week, Tuesday, sometime like the early part of the week uh, on social media, talking about something totally unrelated to the compensatory call-in today. And a person wrote in and they said, oh, man, it looks like White Jesus' birthday is this coming Saturday. Are you still going to be doing the compensatory call-in? I was, I was low-key low offended. 
we have done so many programs on December 25. Like if you were listening at the beginning, I normally have some sort of audio playing, even though we're not officially live yet, just so that people, if they call in, like today's broadcast, we were live at 9 p.m. Eastern. So if you call in at like 8.57, something, some audio will be playing. Like I said, just so the people know, oh, yeah, it's about to start. Today, I had Pamela Evans-Harris from way, way back, I guess relatively speaking, 2014. She was a guest on the program. Some of the suggestions that she gave out, super applicable, not watching television, trying to be better with how we invest our time, energy, finances, Lots of folks have been on the broadcast. Dr. Kamal Kambon, even get a correction. And I was talking with a retired firefighter yesterday. Out of the 31 visits, so many, and she's been here for so many holidays, Dr. Wellson was with us for so-called Thanksgiving, Easter, 9-11, that's a holiday, Super Bowl, that pretty much is a holiday too. She was not with us for White Jesus' birthday. Had to go back and verify. She did do uh, multiple Thanksgiving visits, but not so-called Christmas. The cows, however, we have done bunches, bunches and bunches on so-called Christmas Day. Let us see. For the compensatory call, uh, not for spectators. Hopefully, if you are hanging out, if you've got time where you are not with your so-called family, uh, or not with on the job. There we go. Not on the job. Time with the uh, attempted family. Not having to be harassed and mistreated. Maybe you can get excellent quality rest. Eat some yummy vegetables. Get some exercise. Enjoy a grand conclusion to a really challenging year. Uh, if you're hanging out, have thoughts to share on how you have used your time to get through all the madness, or even maybe if some counter-racist subject matter came up during your discussions with attempted family and so-called friends, uh, feel free. The number to dial, 720-716-7300. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. few things before we get started. Number one, uh, for people also on social media, I have been posting as I've been looking at the weather also since the beginning of the week with dread. Uh, the initial reports at the beginning of the week, it was going to be snowing today, uh, and the temperature would drop to somewhere, I think, like 25 degrees, 23 degrees, something like that. I hate, in my view, anything that is below like 55 degrees, Horrible, 55 Fahrenheit. 
I'm no fan of cold weather. I used to love cold weather. I mean, that was my favorite uh, season easily, totes and snow and all of that. Has not been the case pretty much since I moved to California. Warm weather, summertime, that is the best. Um, so I was waiting with dread. It's like, oh, my gosh, is it really going to be getting in? It's normally not that cold in Seattle. I talked about we normally have mild winters. We will pile up lots of 40-degree Fahrenheit days, overcast, drizzle. That's pretty much what it's been most of this week. Teasing like upper 30s a few days, but right at the norm. Thankfully, it teased. There was a, for like five seconds, there were a few flurries, and they vanished. The temperature was 40 uh, to begin with, so I didn't think it was quite cold enough for there to be any major snow. And as I said, there were flurries for maybe five seconds, stopped. It almost looked like the sun was going to come out. Clouds cleared a little bit, beautiful sky, and then, you know, we were done for the day. But no snow, and thus far it's not even like death cold, still kind of in the normal range, even though we normally don't have weather that is freezing. You could generally get through Seattle winter without a scraper for your car. Uh, let's see, weather notwithstanding. Oh, and it's supposed to be the whole week. It was supposed to be the whole week, so we'll still have to see. Man, we make it to the book club and all that, like supposed to drop down to I think like 20 degrees, um, in the next couple of days, for people, I guess, who are outside the U.S., that's negative 3C, all of which I just find ghastly. So pray for Gusty if it's not too much bother. Let's see. Some of the audio clips that we heard, we started to head the segment about time, and that people on average live about 4,000 weeks, uh, and just accepting uh, none of us has an infinite amount of time. John Henry Clark, he talked, uh, he was in one of, or he's in several of the documentaries about Minister Malcolm X. He talked about one of the things that he wishes he had known earlier in life that with exactly that principle, man, you don't have an infinite amount of time. If you have a vast imagination, a lot of things that you want to do, lots of ambition, you're not going to be able to do all of the things that you want to do, especially in a system of white supremacy racism. Like, they do not intend for there to be a whole lot of nearly full of juniors. You hanging out, writing, trying to be constructive into your 90s. Like, no. Plan to get that. Really, even Dr. Welsing, to be truthful, into your eight, we do not intend on having a whole lot of lucid, healthy, counter-racist octogenarians. Anywho, I thought that segment was important, uh, just time and energy. Talk about that all the work. We do on this program. We talked about that for years, time and energy, use of time and energy. Even with this program, you're not getting constructive information. Find something better, a better way to invest your time and energy. Next segment, they talked about uh, Florida. Use the segment... Uh, the Beast in Florida, Dr. Marvin Dunn, uh, guest multiple times uh, on the Cal's very constructive book, by the way, uh, The Beast in Florida. 
uh, but they talked about these cemeteries, black cemeteries that were quote-unquote lost, quote-unquote forgotten words are very important, and then they went, they went to the details. They said, oh, man, it looks like some of the Florida white people looks like they went through and found different ways of, oh, maybe we need a, a road. Well, we can make up this excuse and this will justify. Oh, yeah, we, we got to co-opt. We got to take the black cemetery. Oh, we'll do right. Oh, yes. Sir. Oh, yes. We, we respect the Negros. Oh, yes. We always love the colors. Yes, we'll move the, we'll move the corpses and, and we have so much respect. We'll, we'll put them over here and we'll put flowers down and everything. And, oh, yeah, it'll be really respectful. And then and they said, and they said, the black people, as they suspected, they had been saying, I don't think they're going to do right. I don't think they're going to move these uh, corpses and they're just going to put down. And it's the same tacky thing as so many uh, books and examples. There's whole books written about this. There's so many examples of this. We talked about this in Virginia where it's exactly the same. They put down a tacky parking lot or a dog park. I think they got that one too. All kinds of little traits. It's not like, you know, they had to put down something really important. We had to put a hospital right here to save life. No. Just bring, you know, Benji to come empty her bowels and, you know, run around, play with the Frisbee. Or a parking garage, like I said, that one's many times over. Well, I think that was, I was going to say it might be too for, for John Henry Clark. said they, you don't even get out of the mistreatment when you die. Because they do, some, they, you know, we, we, sometimes they decide we're not going to bury you at all. But well, we do experiments, right? We got a whole book on that. And then you get in the ground, and then they, oh, no, we don't even respect where you're buried at. Nope, 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 nope. Go around and do some more stuff there. Let's see. They always oh, got to stop. Words so important. So in that segment, Jeff Motes, white man, I suspect, suspected white supremacist, he said there were certainly policies talking about, oh, we'll just make up reasons, justifications to tear down the Negro Cemetery or where they live or whatever it happens to be. Jeff Motes, M-O-A-T-E-S, he said there were certainly policies that further marginalized an already marginalized group of people. Mealy-mouthed, pussy-footing, I strongly discourage the use of the term marginalized. That's when, uh, if you want to talk about mistreated, to further mistreat a thoroughly mistreated, terrorized group of people, now we're getting somewhere. Let's see. Next, they have the segment, um, Black Mother in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, school situation. Uh, Chantel Aaron, Black Mother. And again, I don't have children. Being a parent is a really tough job in a system of white supremacy, attempted black parents. They started the segment. They said that she didn't know her, her child had been pushed by this white teacher and had, the teacher had been saying nigger in the classroom. Miss uh, Aaron said that her daughter 
came home, I guess, and told her about all of this and that this teacher, white woman, shoved her. Haven't we talked about that so many times? White women, I don't want to hear anything about that sexism and patriarchy and that's what the system got wrong. We talk about the prison or school-to-prison pipeline. White women. So this young lady comes home to tell Miss Aaron, hey, this white woman shoved me. You know, she said whatever in the classroom, and then she pushed me down the hall. They said that Miss Aaron thought her child was blowing things out of proportion. I found that so, I'm going to probably struggle to find the correct word, significant. Definitely put that there, but more than that, beyond just significant, like, Wow, that is staggering. That's another you can put that there too. Probably more than that too. If you give me a while and a good good dictionary in the thesaurus, I'll think of some more descriptors. But though we'll stay with those two for now. Significant staggering. A black child. Your black daughter comes home. Mom, this white woman, she said, you know, nigger in the classroom. And I said something about it, and then she shoved me down the hallway. Oh, you're just exaggerating. Like, like, I don't have children, so I don't know. I know, you know, children do a lot of their parents, that sort of thing. I, don't, I would hope I would not, my, my reflex wouldn't be to think that my child is exaggerating. If they come and give me a report about being assaulted by a white teacher, ask questions, investigate, but I hope my my reflex or none of my first five or ten responses, even if it's I hope that this is what it is, I hope my response would not be, oh, she's just exaggerating. She's just blowing it out of proportion. Like, well, I mean, just wow. That is a uh, wow. I, I mean, I just, I suspect, and it even reminded me there was a different report. I think it was like a four-year-old. And the mom just happened to be in school, and the teacher blamed something on her child. And she said she was kind of stupefied just watching. Like, she couldn't believe that this was happening. She was standing there watching this. Like, man, it's almost like you don't have video or you don't see it. Like, whoa, might not be believed even by your own so-called family members. That is the power of white supremacy racism. Again, I don't have children, but that's, that segment, it really it had an impact on me. Significant. Staggering. Let's see. Right from there, uh, retired firefighter, he mentioned it a few days back in saying that a lot of black children, he was concerned about violence uh, and maybe even uh, some sort of gun violence uh, in the schools because so many children are not getting the resources that they need, and it's been so chaotic the past few years. Are we going to school? We're not going to school. It's going to be virtual. We've got to get a booster shot. We've got to get this shot. We can't get this shot. We've got to wear masks and everything else, racism in general. And then you've got racist teachers and these white women. So it's been a lot. And they said a lot of children gained weight while sitting at home. So, man, uh, in ter- I'm not a parent, but I would really do a lot of engagement. I know children don't like to be nagged, but, I mean, hey, that is your job. Nag your child and really be engaged. Uh, what is up? How are you doing? Really checking in, really being mindful. 
about changes, eating habits, grooming habits, just anything. Uh, their affect is substantially minimized from what it normally is. Like you know your child, how they behave, and what have. Even if they've gained weight, because that's been a lot of folks like. Now, like I said before, I could not imagine being 14 years old or 12 or wherever it is on that spectrum, 16, and gaining 20 pounds, and then you're going back and folks you haven't seen, like, in person in six months or whatever it is, like, oh, my God, Gus, what is it? You just sat around eight Cheetos for the last eight months. Eight, four. I'm sick. Children can be cruel. Like, man. So be really engaged uh, with your child, especially if you have time over the next whatever it is, week or so, end of the year, you're on vacation, they're on vacation. Really be spending time and be just super happy about it. What, just finding out things they want to do. Making some food, that can be something. Like we got time, we can make something healthy together, we can make a full meal about it, whatever, their favorite things to eat, see if we can make it a little bit healthier, have some great food to eat and talk about some things that are happening. If they're a younger person, they've got to be engaged. Like, yeah, make time for them. Watch King Richard. But engage with your child. Super important. That way you can get more direct information about how they're doing, and if they're having some problems, they'll be more likely to engage and share. Uh, let's see. They talked about the life expectancy. Uh, in the U.S. and how that has been dramatically impacted over the last two years or so. Uh, COVID-19, they said, being to blame. However, they also said people not getting medical, att uh, medical attention for heart disease and things of that nature. A lot of that is diet-related, lifestyle issues, eating bad food, not getting quality rest, not exercising, not drinking water. But they talked about that in the segment, and they mentioned uh, the impact on non-white people. Now, they use the language specifically uh, that this reduction in quality of or life expectancy, quality of life too, I would expect, uh, has had a disproportionate impact on underprivileged communities. Now, that's another one, niggardly language. You know, we're being really a lot of pussyfooting, being evasive, about what's happening. I know there's some cows listeners say that, hey, I think there's something deceptive about disproportionate. And in fact, I think it's beyond that. I think there's something suspicious. I tend not to trust when they say that. I just don't see any evidence to the contrary. You're talking about a population of people who are already not healthy because of the system of white supremacy primarily, the contagion in the known universe. Uh, but the people that are already not healthy and don't have resources, I don't see how two years of all of this Stress and strife is going to make that any better, especially if you have a lot of black people who are so-called uh, front-line workers. Even if, even if that just means you have to be subject to more, I'm not going to wear a mask, you can't tell me what to do, nigger boy, that sort of thing. That cannot be good for your blood pressure, heart disease, general stress, quality of sleep at night. I could be wrong, and again, I'm not a medical doctor. Let's see. Oh, said the biggest tropic life expectancy was for American males. Now, that was one because they didn't say black people at all. They, they went real, you know, pussyfoot on us, uh, underprivileged and all the rest of it. Uh, can we imagine a scenario where there's black male privilege? 
and where this drop in life expectancy did not impact black males? Can we imagine a universe where that's the case? George Floyd, me neither. Let's see. They had the report, the Pentagon, they made new rules, white people, uh, about uh, what they call extremism. That's another one there. They didn't say racism. They could have been real direct about all this, like, hey, we're not going to sit here and obfuscate anything. Let's make it plain. If you want to practice white supremacy racism, well, then thank you kindly, but you cannot join the armed services. No place for you in Uncle Sam's army. Get on out of here. They didn't do that. In fact, it seemed like a lot of this just boiled down to don't say nigger on your social media. Don't get on TikTok and make racist jokes. That seemed like a lot of it was like social media. What you post or if you, I guess if you share or like whatever, something else on uh, social media, that you could get in trouble for that. And they said you can't be like an active dues-paying member of a so-called extremist organization. I would need that explained too. And they said they had certain behaviors that you couldn't engage in. They said that was very explicit, explicit, but they didn't go into the details of all those. The bulk of what I heard was you can't pay dues, social media. That's kind of limited. Now, I guess they have more protocols, maybe. But, I mean, like I said, hey, you really want to impress me, and if we're really serious about this, we can't make it plain. No racism in the U.S. armed services. You can't just say that? Am I missing something? Maybe I'm ignorant. Let's see. They, I meant to say something about this last week. I played a report about the follow-up this week, but just the circuit judge in Louisiana. That's where uh, Aaron Chantel, Chantel Aaron, excuse me, black mother where they shoved her child down, white woman to white woman. Uh, the white judge in Louisiana, there was some sort of burglary at her residence. They arrested the suspect already and everything. So it's not like this is just wanton crime where they always get away with it. Isn't that what Trayvon, Trayvon Martin's murderer said? Uh, the judge, Michelle Odenet, she's on video, so I guess they're watching whatever post-circuit security feed of the burglary, and so they're on their rant. Oh, count niggas. If people that follow the book club, Alice Siebold's father, when they're going through Philadelphia and they see the crowd of black males, he's like, oh, my God, these animals, and they're just hanging outside. Oh, my God. What are they going to do about these niggas? Oh. There we go. Uh, with Sandra Bullock, they get robbed. Lorenz Tate, ludicrous. They get robbed. And she goes home and tells her husband, we got robbed. I'm not going through this again. You changed the locks on the house. That guy's going to sell our keys. This is for dead. She's using all of the no-count beaners across the border. He's going to sell them to his ponies. All the rest of them. They've been black. It have been niggers and all. Bang. That was Michelle Odenet right there. No count negros that they all ought to be killed. And it applies to all the black people. It's not just this one guy that I'm upset about and all the rest. Not only, I guess there was, she was being recorded. I mean, now how meta is that? There's video of her watching the video. Nigger this and cursing and all the rest of it. 
Uh, so when this becomes public and be like, man, I don't know if that's proper to have a sitting judge. I don't know if that's proper to have a sitting judge up here saying nigga this and nigga that. Maybe she's thinking that way when black people come in the courtroom. Absolutely ask the caller at the courthouse in Florida. I said, I don't know if that's appropriate. She should resign. She should step down. She said, oh, no, 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 no. I was on Saturdays. I'd taken my medication. I had tangled nerves, tried to calm myself. There was an armed robbery, and they went back and said, this was not an armed robbery. The suspect was arrested. He did not have a firearm. That is not true. Not like, this is not like Crash, <laughs> where Sandra Bullock had a gun uh, pulled in her face, and I'm like, no, that didn't happen, Judge. That, and even if you did, would that justify practicing racism? Like if a white guy had burglarized the house, it would have been, oh, my God, these crackers, and I'm up to here. There's one white, another white person has one time to say something to me, and I'm running them all out of here. I'm done with tail fail. That's the way she would have been talking? If it had been a white person, same thing that we said about Alice Siebel, only with black people does it get generalized to there's a problem with all of them, not just the one individual female or male who may have done something wrong. Let's see. Oh, and then they replaced her. I thought this was really, could be tacky or whatever, but deliberate at minimum deliberate racial, racial showcasing, they replaced Michelle Odenette. She's on indefinite leave while they decide what they're going to do, what they let her to continue to be on the bench. She's been replaced with Opelousas City Judge Vanessa Harris, who is a black female, victim of white supremacy. That's what I mean about deliberate racial showcasing. We'll take this white female down who's been accused of practicing racism and put a black female in her place temporarily. Next, uh, just kudos to Mumia Abu-Jamal. Uh, he has suffered from hepatitis. Uh, there were reports uh, that were saying his supporters thought that he might have been positive for COVID-19, which, again, would not be stunning to me based on the report we've heard and what they said about people that are in greater confinement anyway access to sterling medical care that people like Mumi Abu-Jamal have. Uh, but in spite of it all, uh, he is on his counter-racist grind, uh, informed about things that are happening in the world, and did almost a five-minute uh, report on the passing of Bell Hooks and how her scholarship impacted his thinking and views on racism, white supremacy. Amazing. Not even sure if he has consistent Internet access, much less, you know, how his health is. Uh, incidentally, he said that she had to name the system, which I do think is important, but she had to name the system of domination specifically, and that's how we got to the capital, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. Victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, he said he read Margaret Mead. James Baldwin, Rap on Race. I read that book, too. She said that she had to practice white supremacy specifically uh, in that book. That book's been referenced a couple times this month. Uh, let's see. Manuel Ellis, that case happened right here in Tacoma where the officers were cleared for his murder. He was telling them that he can't breathe. 
They put the spit guard over his face, killed him, and now they're going to be back out on duty. They said one of the officers, I guess it was a gang of them, one of the officers was on paid leave for a year and a half. I cannot imagine getting a job where you – I've never been on a job where I got a month of paid vacation, much less a month and a half of paid leave. They said one of the other fellows was on paid leave since January, so basically a year. To then exonerate it, you're cool. No foul. Blackmail privilege. Uh, they talked about Devanya Inman, released after 23 years. He did not commit this murder. Got the evidence he didn't do this. Uh, and they're saying that they hope the same thing happens for Keith Garns, uh, where they did not have quality witnesses. Uh, I knew that this was going to be a case that involved some sort of what they call police informant, uh, where they can pressure a person to lie, say whatever they want to convict someone or not convict them or whatever they're trying to accomplish. Uh, and they said uh, with Keith Barnes, this case specifically black male, uh, they said he had a nearly white jury, and they said that they used this informant to come in and, oh, yeah, he did it, and, you know, we saw it. He was there, shot the guy when he was down, all the rest of it. And they even said that they could pressure the witnesses. They said after some years, some of these witnesses, their conscience got to them. They couldn't be pressured anymore. Like, wait a minute. What do you mean pressuring witnesses? Are these fellows informants too, or, you know, these just average citizens where they come in and put in some sort of strong-arm tactics to make them say what they want on the witness stand? All of that notwithstanding, words are important. They said using a police informant to jam up someone, I thought that was really, like, curious phrasing. Like, if you want to say to wrongfully convict someone, uh, to lie, to execute a wrongful conviction, if that's what we're talking about, I think that is way more accurate than saying jam up. You jam up the toilet. Anyway, uh, they got the conviction, Kim Potter, white women do it better. I'm not in the business of jumping up and down, uh, really, either way. Uh, if they get a conviction, if they don't get a conviction, in so many of these cases, there will be more before this program uh, concludes. Uh, maybe she serves the full sentence. Maybe she doesn't. I don't see how this is going to solve the problem of racism, white supremacy. I think Dante Wright got shot even after George Floyd, if my memory is correct. They were already out, you know, protesting about all that when this happened. So. You know, we'll see what I've seen these get overturned and appealed and all the rest of it. <clears throat> I just, I'll just point out word choice. They said that I think a dozen people or so attended a vigil for Dante Wright after the conviction of uh, former Officer Potter. I was reminded of Mr. Fuller. They said the candles and all that. Mr. Fuller's talked about that for a long time. Uh, but I said, man, they can say that that's powerful. They don't say that black people are less powerful, right? They could have said that, that less powerful people are more impacted by the COVID-19 situation. They say underprivileged. They could have said less powerful people have their cemeteries or property usurped, taken unjustly. They didn't say that. They said marginalized. I'm just pointing out it's very interesting, important, 
when the word power and its derivatives are used. Apparently, it's limited times. They can say it's powerful to go out with teddy bears and candles to mark the death of a black person. Necrophilia. Uh, if we could not use metaphors for the broadcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, try to be as precise as we can with words. Uh, race soldiers will often use metaphors to confuse, deceive, uh, master deception. Victims, myself included, uh, frequently we're still learning, so we don't have all the information we need to make the logical conclusions. So we'll substitute and use some sort of metaphor or whatever analogy. Frequently that just contributes more confusion. Uh, if we could try as best we can to be exact, specific with our word choice, uh, we'll give reminders uh, about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. Uh, if we could all take about five minutes to share our thoughts, views, that would be great, just to make sure everyone has at least one opportunity to share. If you have additional questions, thoughts, uh, just make sure everyone gets their one turn to share, and then you can return if you have more questions or input to offer. Uh, if you're in a noisy environment, uh, if you can do the best you can to get to a quieter location, uh, just helps so that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, if you can use your mute button, unmute, share. When you're done, you can mute your line. Uh, and then if you need to come back to share some more, just unmute. Uh, and hopefully you can revisit the quieter area. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code, 564-943. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, again, if you have any folks hung out with so-called family or what have you, let us know how it was navigating all of that. If you shared any info on racism, white supremacy, definitely share if it went well or no. Uh, and also make sure I get in. I have been saying for I don't know two three months, no unnecessary travel. There have been so many reports. Uh, they said they started the week. They said they canceled uh, over 3,000 flights globally because of weather, staffing shortages, whatever else. Uh, just within the past, I think, like 48 hours or so, uh, they've continued to talk about just in the U.S. how they've had hundreds of flights that have been canceled. They've had weather problems. I told you they were talking about snow even here. Uh, so hopefully, I said this yesterday, hopefully no cows listeners uh, have been impacted by the flight cancellations, delays, and all the rest of it. Uh, like I said, it just seems like it would be the worst of the worst to be stuck uh, at an airport or wherever under these circumstances uh, and to kind of not know uh, how things are going to unfold, when are you going to be able to leave, what is the you know COVID policy if you get stuck someplace with a layover like I don't even know what the protocols are in this city. Like, what am I going to need to ask? just sounds like something I would want to avoid uh, if at all possible. So hopefully nobody was out in the middle of all of this. Um, just try to get through all this the best we can, avoiding as many problems as possible. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed.
Hello. What's up? Greetings, Irie. Greetings. Um, uh, greetings, one on the line. Uh, hmm. uh, when I heard the um, article about mental health and children, I really want to urge attentive parents to not wait until a mental health event emerges at school because one, um, they're, like everybody that has heard me talk about school knows I used to substitute. And the social workers, most of the time, my experience have been white women. And they, the way they conduct classes, they'll have social workers push, push in the classes and stuff. You know, talk about very superficial things about, like, what are feelings and how do I know what I'm feeling and, you know, stuff like that, really light. But I don't see, I haven't seen social workers intervene with children, uh, you know, on individual bases, except when it was time for, like, um, like an individual uh, learning uh, or education plan, otherwise known as IEP. Um, and by that time, the social worker is working with the teachers and um, whomever else they appropriate to develop uh, these education plans based on a diagnosis. And they're going to most likely did not want the child to be medicated. I was working with a non-white uh, woman that I ironically had um, taught her son the day before and um, made some observations, and then I met their mother. And she was in tears talking about how the school was basically forcing her sons to take medications that she didn't feel they needed and that they were starting to develop not ticks but itches from the medication. And she said she just didn't know what to do. And I said, I asked her, I said, did a doctor make these diagnoses? She was like, no, the school, the social worker. And the social worker and the principal said, my, my children won't be able to come to school unless they're medicated. And even in my experience with um, when my son was almost done with school, when he had um, his event, that it was mental health, but it you know it was drug induced and everything. Um, there was so much of a a push. I hope that's not a metaphor, but there was a very much um, sternness in diagnosing him as bipolar or schizophrenic. And they they would mess with his medications when he was uh, hospitalized, which caused some adverse events that. I had to report and I had to inform him when he was in the hospital how to uh, report it himself so that way they would have to act um, and everything. And, you know, I think, you know, like you said, asking the children, how do you feel? Do you, are you being bullied? Has anybody, you have to just ask them. I used to ask my son all the time, has anybody touched you? Anybody's messing with you? Um, and he told me about a couple instances where teachers were messing with him when he was younger. Um, one teacher that was messing with him when he was in, like, fourth grade, it came out that this teacher had put his uh, 
later on put his fingers in a, a young black child's mouth in in the view of a, another, um, I guess you could say, municipal employee, uh, someone doing like the, the library on wheels thing, and he wasn't properly punished or anything. Um, and then later on when he was in high school, he had the instance of the uh, white woman that was hitting on him and, and told me to my told me over the phone that she basically, she admitted she was hitting on him. She didn't say that, but she was like saying stuff to him like, oh, I miss that wonderful smile and why don't you wear these shirts, the shirts with your arms out because, you know, he lifts weights. And, um, you know, it was it was just really, really, it was really um, trashy and I had to get a black male psychologist um, involved and pay out of pocket, and I know everybody doesn't have money like that. But it, it, children are an investment, and you don't want the school dictating how mental health is going to be addressed. It's just what I know from experience, and and they're going to want to medicate your child. Um, there was something else I heard. Um, it's just a lot. I'm just glad to know that. Um, the pastor um, in Benton Harbor is still on the case, you know, um, and I agree with him. How do you um, how do you get rid of people that you no longer want in your areas of of uh, control? You make it inhospitable, um, and I think there are a lot of non-white people that are confused about that because they think that because an area is full of non-white black people that they have control or that, um, I don't know. I'm not sure what they think, but I, I, I've i gotten in debates and I see, I'm telling them, listen, just because you don't see the white people doesn't mean they're not in control and they're not there in a uh, officiating sense. I think the only other thing I want to share was I didn't really do anything today because we don't celebrate Saturnalia. Um and we're not so-called Christians in the sense of, you know, believing that Jesus was born today. You know, still learning about Yeshua myself personally, but um, I did have a dialogue about word choices uh, with my care mate, and I suggested that he stop saying black because he mentioned, uh, well, so-and-so sells whatever on the black market. I said, you mean an illicit market? And he was like, well, you know what I mean? And, you know, I should have be able to have artistic license. I'm like, no, not with something like that. We have to be literal because you're still associating black to something negative. And then later on he said something about something being shady. I said, well, that's another word we should avoid because there's nothing bad about shade, um, just like there's nothing bad about black. And he was like, oh, messing with you. I won't be able to say anything after a while, just like people accuse me of not being able to allow them to eat certain foods because I say something. And I was like, listen, do you want to be on cold or not? <laughs> you know, um, and I try not to bully, but I think that it's a tall, well, no, take that back. I think it is a a, a a very, very distinct and uh, I don't want to say heavy. I don't know what to say. It's a big responsibility to use words correctly, and when it's pointed out, 
people feel like they're being attacked sometimes, so I'm still learning how to suggest things, even if I, I thought I did it in a plaintive way, but obviously it wasn't plaintive enough, and you know men have their pride and everything, so, you know, I have to learn how to um, be more gentle about it, I guess, but I did attempt to be constructive today, and, you know, just observing the weather and how, you know, unseasonably uh, warm it is in places and cold in places. And it's, you know, just having a lot of concern about that because, um, you know, the system of racism and white supremacy has um, changed the um, order of nature on this planet. And I know they're really big on terraforming. So while they're planning on terraforming other places, they're eventually terraforming planet Earth to be um, uh, a planet where you either, you have to live underground eventually, if you're in an area where you can go underground, or um, you have to evacuate completely, and it's it's sad, Um, and I do pray that the Creator intervenes immediately, and I'll mute my line for now. Thank you, Gus, and thank you, everybody. Much obliged caller in Louisiana, uh, who is a mom uh, endorsement right there for Engage, Talk to Your Child. Uh, And I know uh, Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson, many other guests, Dr. Welsing, many of our other guests uh, have talked about that is a big part of just I'd already mentioned so-called school to prison pipeline. That is a big component. Stuff all kinds of drugs into their mouth, totally change their behavior and, you know, have all kinds of responses to these medications. And then that just helps push them right on greater confinement and all the rest of the ugly things that they have planned for us. But advocate, that's spectacular, trying to help that mom advocate for her child where they're carrying out that plan uh, exactly, give them all kinds of medications and, and what have you. And I mean, exactly the questions that you're asking, like, wait a minute, did a doctor prescribe these medications? A social, like, what? What classes? Like, when, when, when does a social worker get authorized to prescribe medication? You can go see a social worker, and they can give you a slip that you can take to CVS to get pills? Like, what? Come on, just black children, like any kind of experimentation. Audio is being goofy. Uh, But any excuse to medicate non-white people, and then any other time when we need healing, medication, resources, struggle to get what we need. But then it's all, no, you got to have, and then you got to have these medications or the child can't come to school. Lots of reasons to have extensive dialogue uh, with your child before, like way in advance of all of that, uh, because that's what's, you know, that's what's been planned for centuries uh, for non-white children. Uh, huge kudos uh, for working to 
get better with the use of words with yourself and your care mate. I think that's a super important skill, hopefully something we model here on the program. Uh, even though I do know uh, sometimes people can kind of take that personal and, you know, kind of feel like, oh, man, you know, you're trying to tell me how to talk and, you know, boss how I speak and that type of a thing. And think, no, you know, we, we just, we've all been conditioned, you know, to, to have those kind of phrases uh, where we are associating the worst things with blackness, uh, black people, all of it, uh, something bad with black cats and, oh, my goodness, and the blackest day and the black market and that character's shape. That's going to come up in, uh, I just mentioned Alice Siebold, Lucky. That's going to come up this week. I just told folks when the book club ended, next, this coming Thursday, is the identification. This is when she picks out, it was Anthony Broadwater. This is the guy, black guy who raped me. Cost him 16 years, no children, all of that. The description, the scene where she sees him, oh, black guy. Got a smirk on his face, standing, talking next to this shady white guy. (laughs) Now, I thought it stood out because she hadn't really racially identified white people throughout the text. But the black guy talking to this white fella, she identifies him as white, but a shady white guy. She says it twice in the same paragraph. In fact, that is a part of what convinced her this is the black rapist. She goes through a checklist. On that checklist is talking to this shady white guy. I know in the summertime, everybody loves shade. But just being mindful. I think even sometimes just trying to ask questions. If you have a rapport, like if it's a care maid or somebody in your family, uh, we can just ask questions. Like, is there a better better term we can come up with in black market? You know, always trying to white people dominate the white market. I mean, the black market, we call it the white market. Or, you know, maybe we can use our imagination. We can think of a more accurate term as opposed to just associating everything bad with black. That way we get to still flex our intellect and don't have to be like, oh, yeah, let's, let's see if we can think of a new term. That shade, that's another one, too. Like throwing shade, I think all the derivatives of that, because it's the same thing, darkening away from light, light. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate again let us know uh, parents as well because there's so many different uh, components I guess to touch on uh, in terms of you know how your children have been dealing with the past two years there's talked so much so many reports uh, about the anxiety and how they're coping uh, kind of letting us know, especially folks, if you're getting to spend some time with your offspring over this, I don't know what they call holiday period, winter break, I guess they might call it. Um, but, yeah, let me know if you have thoughts on that. Again, my thoughts, any of you all, if, you know, your child or children, uh, they come home and 
lets you know, like, hey, you know, this white teacher shoved me and, you know, did such and such incorrect, would that be, you know, do you think that would be in your realm of, of possible responses to say, oh, you're just exaggerating? You're blowing that out of proportion. I don't know. Let me know what you think on that one as well, as well as folks who've been hanging out with uh, folks for the holidays. Uh, other folks' commentary uh, that they want to get in? Let's see. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Beautiful Miami Gardens. Uh, the temperature uh, uh, did drop a little. Uh, little meaning uh, somewhere around uh, in the 60s earlier in the week. and But by uh, today, it went to around uh in the seventies, low seventies. I mean yeah, high seventies. Uh very quiet, very quiet for a December twenty fifth. Uh one thing I notice, uh children do not go outside on the twenty fifth. <laughs> uh very unlike what it was when I was uh a child's age, I put it that way. <laughs> uh, I guess most of the things, whatever activities that are being done on the 26th, 25th, I'm sorry, uh, traditionally uh, is you just do them inside, I guess. Uh, uh, Family-wise, just about everybody who, who knows me uh, that I have uh, some sort of care relation with no me about not celebrating anything so and I've been I've been practicing it so long I don't really have uh any uh problems on those days <clears throat> most of the people that I uh, converse with uh basically have uh similar uh similar uh, understandings uh, and uh, I can uh, easily uh, have conversations with those persons uh, so if normally if not uh, any type of uh, debating or or uh, anything of that of that nature uh, and if someone's has some different thought different than mine then victims guaranteed qualifications as simple as that uh, so uh, uh, it's only one exception I, I have a neighbor I don't I don't know exactly who and I'm assuming he is but uh, he must have a lot of money uh, spending on explosive devices. Uh, just about, well, actually yesterday, 
for some reason. Uh, he was setting setting off explosives. Uh, that's called fireworks. If, if someone doesn't know what I'm talking about, uh, for hours, <laughs> I said, "Is he gonna run out? <laughs> run out of ammunition?" Yeah, you know, but uh, he was consistent a, a long period of time. Uh, basically, I haven't heard heard it that much today. But uh, I would have to look forward to uh, in a, in what a couple of days, uh, four or five days, that it'll start up again. But uh, otherwise, everything has been, uh, uh, I would say, normal for my uh activities down here uh I, on, on the school situation it's it's in my thought and practice is to first trust your offspring on what he or she is saying to you until 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 that particular relationship is broken by someone take it on what they tell, if they if she or she tells you something that goes on in school, believe it and deal with it that way. Also, as I mentioned before, gain some kind of consistency of going to your child or children's school. Uh, it may be somewhat uh, uh, strenuous in doing so. When maybe with somebody's you know job and and that sort of thing, but you got to do that. You you got you got to you got to uh, be present, uh, and your presence will keep down the shenanigans uh, from once once this, the employees at the school uh, know that you are visible at the school of your child or children that would provide the less amount of negative things happening to your child or children. As simple as that. Uh, ask questions. Uh, uh, show up to the, the, the special days. Even, even make a practice of every, at least once a year have a parent-teacher conference. You go on the offensive and have a parent-teacher conference with that with that uh, employee, with the teacher. You know, uh, because from there they would basically be at their best for the most part. I would say probably the child or children that get abused from employees at a institution is you hardly even notice that their parents are anywhere anywhere active with that child and they give that person the the uh give them give them the the idea that they can say something or do something to that child because they're not going to be the child their parents not going to show up anyway that sort of thing and uh but if you're visible then that would that would I would say it would generally not really it very it have ever lower chance of anything happening 
of that nature and trust your child. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Trust your offspring. Very important. System of white supremacy generally does a lot of effective work getting non-white people to be uh, distrustful of each other. So, um, man, the number again, 720-716-7300, decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Talked about those firecrackers, fireworks and such, like going back to last year uh, with the beginning of COVID, where it seemed like a lot of people, like they stockpiled toilet paper and yeast and firecrackers, fireworks, like all kinds of explosions, super loud and plenty of them. Like they got explosions, they got enough. They are already supplied for July 4, 2023. Oh, no. Battle simulation. That, that also is a big part of white supremacy racism right there. Just the pretend like we're blowing up and bombing things and people even when we're not. I didn't even think they did all that for white Jesus' birthday. I thought that was just like 4th of July and... New Year's Eve. He's a week early if it's for New Year's Eve. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, you have comments to share? How you have survived the so-called holiday? We basically got through it. Like, generally feel like if you can get through to the 25th, made it through successfully. I guess for us, we can get through the snowstorm for this week and all that. We'll be good. So I guess we can get to January to deal with uh, countering racism for 2022. But, wow, just trying to get through the rest of the uh, so-called holidays. Uh, other folks, comments that they would like to share? A lot of folks are getting their thoughts together. I did see there's a new matrix that's supposed to be coming out. We'll try to see if we can have Dr. Martin Kevorkian chat it up with us again. Uh, that is like one of the main points of his book, uh, The Matrix, and talking about how that represents white supremacy racism. Uh, so we'll see probably King Richard as well. That's way better film in my opinion. But, uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get him back on if any of the same themes uh, are present in the latest uh, installment, reading more important than watching television. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of what's the book club, not that I'm, you know, trying to put a folks on the demand. So listen, participate for the book club, but just, yeah, we are actually reading something just based on uh, true events, as they say. Uh, and they just did all that talking about Anthony Broadwater, much like Devanya Inman, 
some of the folks that we heard, uh, Keith Carnes, uh, black males wrongfully convicted for all these crimes that they did not commit. The section in the book club this week details how Anthony Broadwater was identified on the campus of Syracuse University. I am eager, and because some of the people that worked on exonerating him, they read this book. I think they highlighted the specific portions that we're about to read this Thursday and saying, man, the people who read this book should have had enough information to say, well, wait a minute, this shouldn't have happened. Let's look at Chapter 6. <laughs> like, just look at Chapter 7. This shouldn't have happened. Like, wait a minute. This book has been published 20, more than 20 years before he was exonerated. I mean, literally, they present information from the book we're reading through the course of the court proceedings to get the exoneration from Mr. Broadwater. That's what I'm saying. We, and we're just paying attention. This is the white woman writing the book. What did she say? This coming Thursday, the book club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p. or 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. Alice Siebold raping black males. Let's see. Invest, if you think the program is constructive, visit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. I'm almost finished with my review of King Richard. Took me some time. I had things to say. The movie is uh, long. Not that, I don't know if that impacted the review taking time or not, but hopefully we'll have that to share as well within a short period of time and encourage maybe people to check out the film. I think this time of year where a lot of people do movie viewing with the family, King Richard. I'm sure lots of black people, they're familiar with the Williams sisters, even if they don't know every detail of their, you know, lived experience to this point, you will enjoy. But the review will be on the blog shortly. In the meantime, upper right-hand corner, you'll see the PayPal button directly beneath it, link for PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. The Cash App address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign decals. Enormous gratitude to all the folks who have invested, kept us on the air. If we make it to February, 13 years, uh, hopefully we have provided constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works. Uh, you can also visit the wish list. Man, enormous gratitude. I put gloves on my wish list. I'm not a fan of winter weather. I loathe being cold. I think my gloves arrived at the exact same time. Gloves from my wish list that I saw, it's going to be 23 degrees. In fact, I think it's going to be down to like 17 degrees at some point this week. I am elated about having my gloves. Much obliged for folks who have nabbed items from the wish list over the past 12-plus years. Again, hopefully, 
We have been worthy of your time and energy. The wish list on Amazon.com, listed under Gus T. Renegade. Let us see. Uh, Other folks who dialed in, if we have not heard from you at this point, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Uh, Hi, Gus. Um, Greetings to everyone or greetings to the participants that are present for this call. I had a a question um, regarding just uh, the appropriate response, the appropriate response to give when being invited to a family gathering, particularly during a horror day. Um, I'm finding it difficult to, although I've been declining invitations because I don't particularly have a constructive connection with the majority of the people in my family unit. I'm finding it uh, just difficult to process. So I'm wondering if there's a broadcast uh, where you share uh, constructive information on on how to uh, function as an as an uh, an attempted counter racist during a, a horror day. It seems, I mentioned Pam, we covered that. Um, We've done so many programs on Christmas previously throughout our tenure that that has come up. Um, The thing that I have recommended, uh, I guess for this one, I guess it can be really easy. Like if you're being invited to these events this year, you can just say, hey, the whole COVID situation, I don't really feel comfortable doing gatherings at this point. Thanks for the invite that I'm still going to pass. Hope you all have a great time and everything. Maybe, you know, next year things will be calm. No argument, no brawl, you know, catch you all next time. We can do a little virtual, what's up for five, ten minutes, whatever, and keep it pushing. Um, if it's just going, like to have some contact, see folks that you maybe don't get to see very often, that sort of thing. I say consistently, if you are less confused about white supremacy racism, my view, that should be demonstrated in your will and ability to minimize conflict with other victims of racism. So if I'm here for the event, horror day event, I'm not going to force people to talk about racism or anything else healthy eating, whatever it is, I might not even say anything. Just being quiet. It's time to eat. I go see if they have any foods that I can eat, I eat. If that's, now that might even be another one. If they're going to have a lot of food that I don't eat, that would be two. We got the Rona, and, you know, I don't think, you know, I have, I have picky eating habits. You know, I don't think you'll have too many things that I'm going to eat, so I don't think I'm going to stop through. But y'all have a great old time. <clears throat> I'll be thinking of you, eating something yummy. But if they have food that you can eat, I would just get something to eat. I wouldn't say anything. They talk about racism, but they're presenting, I guess, in a way that's not logical, that doesn't seem sensible to me. I just don't say anything. Quiet. I can just do the basics. How's everybody doing? You're feeling okay. You've been safe. You have younger people. Oh, man, you can just do the engagement. How have you been doing? How's school been going? 
any difficulties, you all virtual or back in person, you just go right down the line asking questions like, oh, okay, you've been feeling okay? Definitely no. Let me know if you're having any problems or what have you. We can go, you know, grab a snack, go do a little hike or what have you, and talk it through if you need any assistance, like just letting them know they got another voice, like that's constructed by the super constructed. Really, I guess that could go for anybody that's there. Um, but, yeah, I would just, I mean, I don't know how long you have to be there. If this is something where you can drive, uh, like relatively in town or something relatively close where you can drive, you hang out for three, four hours. Uh, a lot of times the television is on at these events, so that, you know, can take up a lot of time anyway. But you can just sit there and not have to say a whole lot just watching TV. But, yeah, if they're not into counter-racism, no problem. Just check in on basic health and well-being. I listen, keep things constructive with what I say, check on the young people especially, and I don't stay too long if you want to do it at all. That's what I would do. But, yeah, I know some people are more in trying to press the issue of talking about racism, even if it causes a problem, and that sort of thing. I'm a big advocate of keeping lines of communication open, not causing problems or adding, uh, creating conflict, trying to minimize that as much as you can so that if they get to a point where they would like to address racism later or anything constructive, communication is open, they can reach out to you and constructive things can happen. But, yeah, that would be my recommendation. Is that, I don't know, is that something that you've tried or does that seem not logical, not feasible? Um, thank you for your response. So I am still learning, and in the past I've, I've responded in, in a manner that was, I would say, non-constructive, seeing as how I maybe pressured a few people in my family unit to discuss racism. Um, so because of that, uh, it, it, it would seem unnatural to put myself in that setting and to not do that. But um, it would be, I think it'd be, I like what you said about keeping the lines of, of communication open. That way, once they're, they're willing or able to have that discussion, you know, we'll have that rapport. So perhaps it would be constructive for me to to at least try to practice uh, just being there and staying in the question lane um, and just being quiet um, and being observant. Um, I think that's something I would definitely need to work towards. Uh, I'm not there yet entirely. But I, I appreciate the the recommendations. For sure. I think lots of us still learning. So yeah, that's that's good. And I think lots of people have had that same experience where they are trying to get people to talk about white supremacy racism who are still avoiding that, resistant uh to talking about white supremacy racism, which is very widespread. Uh, and that's, I think, why Mr. Fuller says that waiting uh, until folks are asking questions, they're receptive, they want to talk about this, then it makes it much easier, much more enjoyable for all involved. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly, I'm all about not wasting time, said that before. But, I mean, hey, food is important, too. If you have any folks who are into cooking and they're trying to do better with diet, that could be another attitude to moving things to be more constructive. Hey, you know, I love a good sweet potato pie. That can be made a little bit healthier. Cut some of that sugar out, get that dairy out, 
that sort of thing, see if we can make header, uh, healthier meal options for the Thanksgiving dinner, especially if we got any folks there who are struggling with weight issues. So, hey, that could be one. We don't have to talk about racism directly. We're just on eating better food, especially if that also is something that's a problem. Like if you eat food that they don't eat anymore, see if we can change up some of the diet. Like it's always some people that are, you know, having diet problems in this part of the world. So, um, yeah, that could be another one. But I'm a, I'm a big advocate. You don't have to talk about anything. You don't have to be the person that is known as, oh, man, here he comes. Gus is going to kill us. Racism, <laughs> this. And the whitey did this. Doesn't have to be that. I'm just quiet. Don't have anything to say. Trying to eat healthy, drink some good water. That's about it. Checking on folks, make sure that they're doing well. As they say, lines of communication. That is all. Uh, any of the other folks uh, that are with us, did you have any uh, recommendations if you're going to do the family thing? I think retired firefighters, it seemed like maybe you had family members that maybe are a little more receptive, so that can make it easier. But any tips, suggestions for folks going into this environment where maybe the folks are not so interested in transgenerism? They're going to find out about you anyway. Uh, but uh, in most cases, the subject, <laughs> the subject will come up without, without you having to bring it up. Uh, I, that's what I find out. There's always a period of time where uh, people, you know, start having conversations. And, uh, of course, what lately has happened in the news type of conversations come up, and eventually in time, I would say it's a high percentage where racism will be the subject. Now, you can make your choice. You maybe, like Gus said, you, you, don't, you, know, you purposely don't become involved, uh, <clears throat> and, but in my case, somebody, someone would ask me a question, <laughs> you know, and probably you would be asked a question. Then that would be your opportunity to uh, to share, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, and uh, and that's how you would avoid uh, conflict from that standpoint. Because most cases, the subject comes up without you having to say anything uh, directly or indirectly uh, as far as that concern. But, uh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I would do. Uh, but uh, I uh, seldom, I'm seldom involved into uh, family gatherings of that sort over the traditional holidays. Now, if someone just called for some sort of meeting of some sort uh, as a family member or, or quote-unquote friend, uh, that's a different situation. But if something around these, these uh, holidays, no. I, I, most cases don't, don't show up at all. Thank you for that. You're welcome. 
But one thing I do know that most most people on this program are younger than me, and you still have you probably would still have uh, the content of family members, older family members like mother and father, that sort of thing, or some older person. Most of the older persons that were older than me when I was younger are no longer alive. <laughs> so I don't have to uh, be confronted with, a, with that type of situation. Uh, actually, I would be one of the older per- persons in a family-like structure uh, from that standpoint. Uh, but that may be different for some people on the cows. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I would I would say I'm the oldest out of my family is pretty large. I'm pretty sure the word is spread that that I um, I enjoy discussing uh, racism, white supremacy, um, and. I would I, I I do believe that it would be constructive for me to at least maintain uh, some type of connection with the younger generation. Um, however, it seems it seems that those the opportunity to have those discussions are, are only during uh, holidays. So um, it's difficult to kind of. Uh, to gauge what's the right thing to do. But currently, I've decided not to attend. Um, but perhaps, you know, next year, um, white supremacist willing, I can, I can um, you know, maybe attend an event and, and um, utilize a lot of those strategies that, that you and Gus were uh, recommending. So. Yes. I, I don't know if I've said it yet, but... but if there is such a discussion and you are involved, mm-hmm. I would try to formulate everything, most things that I have to say into a question. Okay. As opposed to, and I would stay away from statements for the mm-hmm. most part. As much as I could, I would stay away from statements uh, and put every, and literally put something that, that could be considered to be that you can easily make out of a statement, I would I would do the work and put it into a question. Okay. Put it into a question. And because uh, most times when you're putting things into questions that lower the chance of a debate, therefore a something that can easily go into a argument of some sort, you know, that sort of thing, just put it in the que- in the term of a question. Mm-hmm. And and stay in the logical lane. Stay in the logical lane, and uh, from there, things probably will work out all right. Noted. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Yes, sir. You're welcome. Always a big proponent of asking questions. Uh, let's see. Uh, any other folks? Uh, any suggestions? 
folks we missed it all, folks' suggestions that they have uh, for navigating the holidays and minimizing conflict with relatives so they don't think of you as the angry, radical, militant nephew or uncle or auntie or whatever it happens to be. Um, other folks with tips, thoughts to share? Um, <clears throat> what I've noticed is um, well, a lot hey, of Wait on one second, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. Did we miss anybody totally? Anybody we haven't heard from at all? Can I be heard? Bay Area mom, yes, ma'am. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks for thanks for taking my call. I'll be real quick. Um, oh dear. Oh, so uh, I have to. I have. Um, I'm. It's it's Christmas. I have um children. They're adults, but they're with. They're in Arizona with their dad, so I'm just by myself. So, um. My son did come back from um, college, so it's it's kind of cool. He hasn't been here <laughs> long. He left Tuesday, even though he got here early Sunday morning. So I guess I'll maybe on New Year's I'll be able to say something. But I think their dad is enjoying the children. Um, let's see what else. Um, oh. Uh, it was a segment that it was a, 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 a somebody got a child got hit by the teacher. So um, with me, well, I'll start with me. My mom. I remember my teacher hit me, and my mom. I told my mom because I like math, so I knew my mother was gonna bring it to him. So I, my teacher slapped me. I kind of agitated a bit, but she didn't have to slap me. So she slapped me, and I was just like, ooh, I can't wait to tell my mama because I know how my mama is. So couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to tell my mother. And as soon as I told my mama, the next day my mother was at that school with her shotgun, and she told that lady, if you ever put your hands on my child, I will blow your whole head off. And it was, yeah. So if it was my child, myself, I, I I can't have to keep up with that without you know causing too much uh, commotion. So I would listen to my child if they came and told me something. I'll always listen. I do know my children, but I'm not gonna second guess what they're saying because I'm already involved enough to know. I'm I'm not just that disconnected from them in school and the teachers to where I have to second guess what they're saying. And I'm up there and something's going to happen. And if I'll expel children, I'll get rid of that teacher one way or another. So I've had that happen to me as a child, but never as one of my children. I don't think, yeah, none of them have ever had that kind of issue. So, um, that that's my part to that. Uh, what else? What else? So a, a lady uh, was stating that she was uh, speaking with, um, I guess, uh, just with different words and stuff, and talking to maybe uh, uh, I, I don't know what they're calling their mates, but maybe with a significant other, um, and he's kind of getting agitated because can't say nothing because. There you go, correcting them. 
<laughs> I, me personally, me, you take it however you want to. I'm not trying to be mean or rude. But I would stop doing that. I would stop correcting him. You can just, if I would do this, because me personally, if I was him, at some point I would just get tired of you and get my own apartment because I don't, I couldn't deal with that because you have to meet people where they are. And right now he, he's totally not where you are. So if he's using the incorrect words, instead of correcting him, you just use correct terminology when you're speaking. And then when you have children of age, you know, development age, you can do that with them. But with a grown man, unless you don't mind being by yourself and getting another one, because in real life, he's not going to deal with that. So I think I would just meet him where he is until he's, you know, in another place. And I'm not trying to be rude or anything. I'm just being logical dealing with us, especially black males. They don't No, Please stop doing that. Please. Okay. And I'll mute my call. Thank you. Much obliged, Bay Area Mom. Hopefully your child will have safe travels uh, from the desert back to California. Much obliged for the recommendation uh, as well. That is at least interesting to think about. Like it is meeting folks where they are uh, is important sometimes. At least that's another way to approach where you model correct language if folks, you know, get I knew I do certainly know some folks where they get take it personal and get very defensive about you know having people uh, make comments about their speech, even cows listeners. So that is definitely something to consider. Uh, anybody that we missed totally? Anybody that we have not heard from at all? May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. I just wanted to make a few comments. Um, The first, uh, I was thinking about the uh, FDOT that I usually have come into the job to get older deeds. Like I always thought about if uh, some of those documents may have uh, involved individuals who have uh, obtained property or were leaving other heirs in probate for like um, like black cemeteries and things like that. I I was just thinking about that at times, and that uh, segment reminded me of that. Uh, Another observation I made was I noticed that term accountable or accountability was used. I think it was used on the the Kim Potter segment where I think the the person was saying it was making a a comparison between the word justice and the word accountable. And, you know, I would have liked to hear a definition, you know, Um, but it was interesting to hear that word used. Uh, frequently in the segment where I think it was an artist mural at the uh, the university, I believe, 
was defaced, uh, racism, white supremacy, um, uh, I guess like white supremacy symbols were sprayed onto the uh, the art of the, the black artists. And the I think that was a victim made a comment, uh, was talking about there's room, there's always room for forgiveness. But I think even in the same sentence, he said, uh, that doesn't mean that I want them to come back and continue to do it. You know, I thought that was, I, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting that he uh, worded it that way. Um, there, there was a, another thing I wanted to mention. One last thing is that the the evidence, like uh, technology, cameras, uh, Gus, I think you mentioned it before. Like, if you don't have any like camera footage to show uh, clearly, black person being harmed, attacked. I think one guy was um, uh, killed, I believe, by the race soldiers, and the person was saying that they shouldn't have other uh, law enforcement or police officers or whoever investigating other officers in the in the uh, same department because as a black person you know um you make a report of being mistreated in all areas of activity um your word is going to be dismissed and not valued period um so you know i i find that to be uh a great point that was made about uh, things being on camera, the child being pushed. I think in that segment they mentioned that was on camera as well. So um, definitely uh, trust the the children because I have two nieces and a nephew. I don't have my own offspring, but uh, I do see them that way. I try to help uh, give constructive information as an uh, attempted uncle. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Very constructive. Very constructive. Recommend that all the time, even if you don't have children directly yourself. Uh, If you have cousins, nieces, nephews, whatever it is, um, try to share constructive information to help them, you know, get a better understanding of the world in which we live uh, and the problems they will face if they are classified as black. Uh, Anywho, uh, let me see. Uh, Irene in Louisiana, did you have commentary you wanted to give before we get ready to wrap up? Thank you for your patience. I apologize. I I didn't um, realize other people were going to... join in. But I wanted to say basically what the area mom said, I believe that was her. She said something similar to what I was going to say. So um, only other thing I would say maybe uh, take uh, situations, uh, family gatherings as a chance to observe, um, you know, what the system has done to people mentally and how they're responding. Just make like take notes. Don't even get in the conversations per se, um, 
you know, other than asking people maybe how they're doing, because I don't think it's a good idea to isolate from family. You never know who may need your help or who whose help you'll need, and to be distant too much will estrange you from family. And I I, I, know, I don't think that's ever a good thing to do. It's still, you know, your family, part of your tribe. Um, and, you know, people will start asking questions when they're interested in what, you're, what you have to offer. Um, yeah, that was basically it. And I, I just wanted to make one other observation. Um, I think I've um, come to a conclusion on how books are being burned not in a literal sense, but um, a friend of mine sent me a screenshot of, um, you mentioned Dr. Umar, and I thought of this, um, sent me a screenshot of a book by Dr. Umar that has been priced to $358. And um, I tried to uh, purchase uh, a book by Neil Postman and another book on, uh, like an anthropology book. Um, And the Neil Postman book was like $600. And the other, like, anthropology book written by, I believe, suspected racist, I can't remember his name, but something uh, parallel to Dr. Marimba Ani's book, Urugu, so from a European perspective, um, that book is over $1,000. So I told my friend, I said, well, you don't have to burn books to get rid of them. You just price them where people can't afford them. And, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Good night. Much obliged, uh, Irie. In Louisiana, I got confused. Well, not confused. I got uh, delayed, I guess, to be more correct. I was like, well, Neil Postman's book is priced for what? <laughs> like, uh, we read uh, Neil Postman for folks listening uh, in the book club. Uh, we read, he has many books. We read um, Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk, one of my favorite books. Loved it. Um, that book is more difficult to get. It might be out of print. It's a little bit older, but I do have that book. So I was like, oh, is that book worth something? Like, whoa, because <laughs> I have the digital copy of that one too. Um, but reading more important than watching television, and we talked about that, I think, just within the last two, when Mr. Ron Lax, uh, Henrietta Lacks' eldest grandson, when he was on the program, that was happening with his book, uh, where it was not available on Amazon for a period of time. I think it's back now. It's been restored but it was not available, and people had price gouged it to where it was like $200, something crazy, to get a copy of the book. I've seen that with Mr. Fuller's book. I've seen that with Dr. Welsing's book. I've seen that with uh, Anthony Pryor, black male. He's been a guest on the cows repeatedly. Uh, he's written about racism and sports specifically. Uh, with his books, he'll sell them for like $20. They'll be on Amazon and things for like, 250 bucks, $300, that type of thing. Very, very common. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we will be here at minimum for the book club. That is on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Alice Siebold, Lucky, The Wrongful Conviction of Anthony Broadwater. I'm looking forward. Uh, the caller in Florida where he was talking 
uh, the University of Washington, that was where the mural, they put the racist uh, graffiti on it. They had the victim on where he said, there's always room for forgiveness. I feel like they always love to get victims on. Say, oh, yes, forgive. Yes, it's about reconciliation and forgiveness. They said, but at the same time, I don't want to have to come back and rethink this every other weekend either. I don't know what his understanding of white supremacy racism is because generally speaking, oh, yeah, you will have to come back and repaint the mural like every other weekend. Like Emmett Till, the markers that they have for Emmett Till, sometimes they come and steal the whole mural. We just talked about that a couple days ago. Don't think that's just in the U.S. They talked about that in the U.K. Stephen Lawrence, his mother, came on this program, talked about they have monuments where they will come and smear broken glass into the monument, the marker where he was killed by a gang of racist thugs, and they'll come and break the glasses at the center that they erected in his honor, and they have to pay money to replace the broken glass. And she didn't say this is a one time. This is over and over and over. Same thing with the immaterial markers. What does it mean to be white? Anywho, much obliged for folks who tuned in. Uh, again, I'm all about Keep it constructive. I thought we had some great suggestions from folks. Uh, just take an observation. That's the one I'll give too. I said television. See if you can just take notes on the type of movies and or TV programs that they are really enjoying right now. A lot of times that can tell you a lot just in terms of the type of brain trashing racism that they're being exposed to. Just, you know, Pay attention. But, yes, I'm a big advocate in those environments. Not breaking ties. Very important. Racists, they love to isolate and abuse non-white people, even especially in those tragic arrangements. They get the non-white person, if they're going to marry them or whatever it is, they get it so that they are feuding. The non-white person is in some sort of feud with all the non-white people in their so-called family. Maybe they're upset about this tragic arrangement. But whatever it is, it ends up being that the non-white person is isolated just with their little white so-called spouse, whatever it is. They're isolated, estranged from their family, much easily to mistreat and confuse someone in that sort of situation. So, yes, I'm a big, as I said, the metaphor, keeping the lines of communication open so that we can talk. If it gets to the point where they want to ask questions and are receptive to dialogue about white supremacy racism, bang. We're not feuding. We're not bitter enemies. I think that's the constructive way to go. Minimizing conflict, say that all the time. That is the best way to demonstrate you are more informed about white supremacy racism. Minimizing conflict with other individuals classified as black, non-white people in general. All of that said, much obliged for everyone's participation. Be safe. Uh, sobriety would be best. It'll be sobriety checkpoints until 2022, I suspect. You do not want to be out on the road. And even, number one, hey, it could be snowing here. I don't know where you are. 
I guess retired firefighter is not uh, snowing down there, but getting still. Sobriety checkpoints, even in Florida. Not the time of year that you want to take a chance being out on the road or what have you intoxicated. In addition to being sober, not the time of year to be having verbal confrontations with strangers. There's so much craziness happening right now. You should be thinking this fella, male or female, could be armed. If you did not leave your residence prepared for an armed conflict, like fight to the death, exit, not even worth it, that person could have an entire armed entourage at the ready. You just came out of your house to get Funyuns. If you're going to be driving, you are sober, you are buckled, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, we need all of our attention so we know what's going on, and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, Kyle Rittenhouse, badge or no. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.